For decades, there has been a tug of war between connectionism and symbolism, or between discrete and continuous, or perhaps you might prefer the terminology, between type 1 and type 2. Symbolism requires symbol processing as the most suitable model of cognition, which is to say the serial, syntactical and universal transformation of discrete symbols in computational algorithms or in plain English. The kind of code that you write in Python could construct a valid model of cognition. The symbols or variables, if you like, serve as representations of external reality. In NLP, the symbolist would represent lexical semantics through an ontology or semantic network, typically manually created by lexicographers or domain experts. On the other hand, connectionism regards parallel and distributed information processing in the form of vectors and tensors as being the most salient model of cognition, that is, in other words, the application of artificial neural networks. In my opinion, the duality between discrete and continuous is fascinating. It seems to pervade absolutely every single aspect of reality itself. Now, since the 1980s, when connectionist methods started getting traction, a whole theory arose trying to postulate an alternative and unified theory of cognition. Smolensky, Rumelhart and McClelland, they devised a new model of cognition which um, is called the sub-symbolic paradigm, right? So connectionist models may well offer an opportunity to escape the brittleness of symbolic AI systems, but is it possible to marry them together, right? With an integrative or hybrid paradigm. What's interesting with almost all of these integrative approaches is that they use a type one model as the first class citizen, right? Many are looking for ways to create a type two interface within a type one model, exactly as is the case with transformers and graph neural networks. So all of the dominant hybrid approaches are much closer to connectionism than symbolism. I mean, personally, I must say I'm, I'm quite interested in Cholet's conception, right, which is almost turning it on its head, um, having a first class discrete model in the inner loop and a neural network in the outer loop, much like recent efforts in neural program synthesis. So you basically embed meaning and grammar all together in categorical quantum mechanics. What you do get then is a quantum model of language. It can be called a quantum model of language. I didn't like to use the term at the time. Now I'm totally unashamed to use the term. And I think at the time was suddenly deep learning start to boom, 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 boom. And nobody, and no, nobody had any other interest than deep learning. Everybody, everybody was obsessed with deep learning. Why not put language on a quantum computer? But Will, there are no quantum computers yet. That's not true, Bob. I'm going to work for a company called Rigetti and I'm going to build them there. Great, that is really cool. Let's figure out how that works. Now, Professor Bob Kirk met Professor Lambeck in the late 1990s and a few years later demonstrated his categorical diagrammatic quantum formalism of quantum teleportation. Lambeck immediately recognized that these were the same thing as the pre-group categorical grammars that he had been using in language. It's fascinating that a chance encounter between two scientists could elicit a convergence of two completely different strands of research. Now, a pre-group 
category or grammar, it consists of a lexicon of words, a set of types and relations between the words and the types. It's a little bit like Lego, but for language, right? You can declare the connectivity on the relations between the types. For example, the word met must plug into a noun on the right side and the left side. A beautiful diagrammatic calculus emerges when you draw lines between the contracting types when they're connected together. Now, Bob is a huge advocate of what he calls anti-Cartesian togetherness. It's a paradigmatic shift from reductionism to togetherness, right? So take this instance of a verb, right? A verb, it connects to an object, a subject, and the meaning of a sentence. The meaning can't be decomposed into parts. It must be reasoned as a whole, just like entangled particles violate independence and collapse as a whole, not as parts. This is something which is immediately noticeable in Bob's diagrammatic calculus. The interesting thing about language is that it's not really one-dimensional. It's broadcasted as a sequence of tokens, but those tokens have a hierarchical self-referential relationship requiring multiple dimensions to represent meaning. Language is also weirdly discrete, isn't it? So Bob and his collaborators were inspired by Smolensky's formalism of sub-symbolic natural language processing, seeking to unify the symbolic and the vector-based worlds by casting an utterance into a structured object representation, which is to say, decomposing it into symbols and roles, representing variable and value bindings and conjugations. These can then be projected into a vector space via a tensor product or an outer product and conjugated by simply adding the tensors together. Now previously the NLP world was dominated by linguists and inspired by Chomsky's idea of using propositional deductive logic as the starting point for their grammar, which is frankly antithetical to vector spaces, right? Bob decided that this was overly onerous, and we actually needed to think about the abstract structure of text itself, the flow of meaning between the words. The thing that inspired this the most was when Bob discovered that a lot of the grammatical burden actually vanished when we use his quantum reasoning approach to collapse the complexity of the representations. The problem though is that these vector spaces were tricky to work with. Every grammatical structure would live on an entirely different vector space and you couldn't make them interact in any way. The spaces were way too large. They blew up exponentially with the number of variables seen in the tensor products, which needed to be computed, of course. Remember, the inner products can only be computed if the tensors live on the same space, which would mean that they would need to have exactly the same grammatical structure. So with Lambex formalism, you could represent the grammar as a pregroup with the vector spaces inside if you organize them as a category. This would not only verify the grammatical correctness of a sentence, but it could also project it into a compositional vector space. So we're effectively conflating vector space meanings and typed logic for grammars. So here, the types become vectors themselves, participating in tensor products evaluated over all of the possible type assignments. The tensor product superposes the types, allowing them to interfere constructively and destructively to amplify or attenuate different possible meanings. As more words across the text combine, the right meaning, the right interpretation should become ever more pronounced. 
So in this conception, the grammatical structure becomes an envelope over the vector space itself. And what's interesting for us now is that this isn't a machine learning conception. The, the roles and the symbols were hard-coded by humans, but Bob now thinks that deep learning can extract the symbols and the types from the text, and then his sub-symbolic formalism can do the rest. Now, um, Bob argues that his NLP conception becomes a continuous generalization of Montague-style Boolean value of, you know, propositional logic semantics, where the sentences are merely true or false. In the same spirit, Bob argues that this elicits the ability to have degrees or probabilities of meaning, something which I'm fairly sure Walid Subber and the traditional GoFi advocates would scoff at. Bob goes one step further, and he suggests that this new approach to grammar might actually represent an, you know, an exciting new development in the space, perhaps one of the most exciting new developments since Montague himself. Now, on the other hand, we have quantum computing, a notoriously difficult engineering problem drawing tens of billions of investment dollars from the world's largest corporations and governments. They are fighting to capture a marketplace which is expected to reach $100 billion in the next decade. And not only is it hard to build a quantum computer, it might turn out to be even harder to program them. So far, only a handful of useful quantum algorithms have been designed, and configuring a quantum computer to calculate using those algorithms is itself a monumental engineering problem that will probably, interestingly, be driven by machine learning procedures. Bob has invented an interesting new pictorial formalism for quantum mechanics called ZX Calculus. He's been working on it on the, you know, for the best part of the last two decades. He's written several fascinating textbooks on the subject. It allows almost anyone to reason about quantum circuits, entanglement and quantum teleportation. Could NLP and quantum computing be a match made in heaven? Does it just so happen by cosmic accident that NLP is amenable to quantum computing? Bob thinks that quantum entanglement can be leveraged to dramatically collapse the calculation complexity of the superposition of possible meanings of a sentence using this Lambic representation. This is because the compact closed category allows us to use Bob's diagrammatic quantum calculus to greatly simplify the computation required. So you might argue that Bob's approach is actually just no different from vector semantics in deep learning, and that he's essentially replaced vectors with types. So his approach might suffer from the same limitations of vector spaces in general, namely that they lack abstract structure, and the structure that they do have is not reversible or invertible. Once a tensor composition is obtained, its decomposition is undecidable, which is to say we can't go back to the constituents. So doing so would require symbolic variables and, and thus quantification. So GoFi people would still argue that a logical calculus is required in natural language processing. The symbolic or type 2 structure allows us to extrapolate better. Fodor himself argued that once a human understands what Mary loves Joe means, they would also understand what Mary loves Dave means via extrapolation. In other words, we need syntactic structure and compositionality of symbols and quantification. This isn't to say that we shouldn't use vectors at all. If we insist on eschewing symbols, vectors are still a good way of representing approximate meanings. Vectors have a nice compositional algebra, but on the flip side, vectors are not 
templates. They cannot extrapolate to infinitely different sentences or account for different variables, scopes and quantifications. So Bob would argue that the use of logic in language isn't propositional in spite of Montague. He thinks that um, it's not based on the kind of discrete causal structures that you would find in Perl, for example, and that we should rethink what interference means beyond the binary or the true and false setting. Bob would also argue that his approach is not even committed to vectors, right? They're, they're experimenting with continuous structures like density matrices and even crazier stuff uh, which the categorical framework allows for. Bob would also be one of the first people to denounce vector spaces, right? Following von Neumann, who thought that they shouldn't be used as a formalism for anything. This is what got Bob started into the diagrammatic approaches for quantum reasoning in the first place. So the key concept for Bob is that what should really emerge from this conversation today is the concept of togetherness or interaction dynamics are super important. And also there are old results from semantics and computer science that propositional reasoning and probabilities simply can't live in the same world. They're completely different, but we need something new to replace them. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed the show today. I've had so much fun making it. Remember to like comment and subscribe. We love reading your comments and we'll see you back next week for Professor Gary Marcus and Professor Lewis Lan. Peace out. We had Francois Cholet on the other week and he was saying that he believes that human brains are actually discrete first, right, <laughs> on, on the inner loops. Oh yeah, the question was the question was about uh, whether, whether there is some similarity with, with catastrophe theory. Like, I can't remember his name. Um, there's a, a French, French Belgian mathematician who got the Fields Medal for that. And, and so you see, there's a lot of topology in this, analy in, in this analysis of things there. So that guy himself was very interested in education. And he was like one of the mathematicians who put forward in the strongest possible terms that that development of reasoning of people is not spatial initially. It's not like geometrical. It's purely topological. It's like about pulling a rope on two sides and it moves without even having an understanding about different distances. So kids don't even understand the difference between short and small and stuff anymore. You can test this with kids. They, they don't have a, a, an understanding of what fits in what at a very young age. They only learn this later, but they already have some topological understanding. And then, mm -hmm. I mean, Piaget did a lot of experiments with these things. So, so it's becoming sort of a new, I mean, I, I mean my wife's an education specialist. So she, she's now starting to do experiments with these things. Like again, like, like the sort of fundamental, so the topology is like a fundamental, I mean, we wrote some paper, like, like in the, I've got one paper in psychology journal about that sort of stuff. Like in physics, when people analyze space times, you got sort of different layers. You got like a causal layer and then you bring in topological structure and then geometrical structure and blah, blah, blah. But it seems to be the same with humans, that the way we develop our understanding of space comes from like with different layers of structure. And the topology seems to be the first one, mm. like really this topological understanding. I mean, I don't know much about it, but I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, if you okay. look at a kid, it's clear that the, the sort of topology stuff is something they understand before they understand any geo, anything geometrical. I have a question, which is because uh, a lot of a lot of what we talked about today really has to do with whatever we want to call it, emergence, holism, you know, uh, yeah. togetherness. It's all the same sort of. Do you um do you follow much sort of the philosophical debate of? strong emergence like does is there such a thing as strong emergence do you believe that there is and and what in your if so what is say the 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 most crystal clear the best case of strong emergence i, I don't really understand the distinction in general very well right i don't i don't really i mean i know i know the definition but i don't really understand it to be honest 
it, it, it doesn't seem so dichotomic to me. I mean, this, I mean, this whenever, whenever people call something strong or weak, or whenever they try to measure something on a line, I usually sort of, I don't understand this. Because <laughs> for me, things don't live on a line. Nothing lives on a line. Definitely nothing is, nothing is binary. Right. And you can, you know, you can, you can formalize it in a way. So for example, quantum entanglement to me, I think is, is a simple example. Like it's very clear mathematically. Would you, you call this emergence? Yeah. Well, the, the variables are not separable, you know, flat out. They're just not separable. You have to analyze the entangled yeah. state as a whole. You can't analyze the individual probabilities. You can't assume independence. That just doesn't work. And so to me, that's the definition of strong emergence. Yeah. You know, would I mean, be an yeah, entangled yeah. state. I mean, but, but then pretty, that, I mean, my statement then is pretty much there is nothing else than strong emergence in nature. To tell me something which is not strongly emergent. Explain me something. Some pheno I'm not talking about right. theories. I'm not talking about mathematical descriptions. I'm, I'm talking about real phenomena. Tell me a real phenomenon that, that's not strongly emergent. Well, I've, I've seen that argument made, um, for example, um, you know, by, by other physicists that, that the only behavior in the universe is emergent behavior, that we don't even have access actually to the lowest level of the tiniest, most fundamental things. And we never will, that the only behaviors we observe are actually emergent behaviors. But I mean, staying away from kind of such a strong dichotomy, like, you know, cause it's not that useful to say everything is emergent. Cause then we can't, can't, you know, talk about things that are not emergent, you know, to me, it seems like quantum entanglement is a canonical example of something that's strongly emergent. And yet you'll find people like, right. That, that are so their identity is so caught up in reductionism that they'll try and find some semantic way to argue that no, 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 no. Like, yeah. It's not yeah. Really yeah. Strongly I mean, emergent. That, 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 also, that, that also in itself was so bad in the nineties for theoretical physics. These, pe these, these people still fighting all this sort of quantum stuff, trying to put this in a classical world. That also did a lot of damage to the foundational stuff. That did a lot of damage to the community. And, and they're starting again. But, okay. but now I think the quantum computing is strong enough to actually kind of like that people can completely neglect that sort of... But I mean, I mean what, the way I see quantum mechanics, what it taught us was that we have been trying to make everything look non-emergent throughout all of history. And it sort of... Basically, right. showed, you can't get away with that. Really, stop right. doing that. You just can't get away with it. Here is the proof. I agree. But and and part of the part of this obsession with this this this, this non-emergent stuff and this Cartesian stuff is why the humanities and all that are so far behind in sort of scientific practices of, of mathematical nature because the mathematicians and all the formalists were never suited for these people and the sort of substance they deal with it was never suited because you have to go to this emergent. Of course. Like what's it? What's interesting about two people? I'm <laughs> not describing them individually. You know, <laughs> I mean, that is, it's, not, it's not very interesting. Like, like it's it's all about like the emergent stuff which happens if you put two things together, and and the maths maths is only starting to go. So now there is a new new community which is called applied category theory community, and that that's the sort of stuff they're looking at. But I mean, not not just social, also like a uh, like, like in engineering because engineering mm -hmm. needs that sort of math too. You know. Sure. Yeah. Like a steel bar has, you know, rigidity because it's an emergent property. It's not a yeah. property of iron atoms. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel uh, with me, Tim Scarf, and my two compadres, Dr. Yannick Lightspeed Kilcher and MIT PhD, Dr. Keith Duggar. Now, um, in today's show, we have 
Bob Kirk, who is a celebrated physicist. He's been a physics and quantum professor at Oxford University for the last 19 years. He's particularly interested in structure, which is to say logic, order, and category theory. He's well known for work involving compositional, distributional models of natural language meaning. And don't worry, we'll go into what we mean by that later. uh, There's a lot of jargon already. He's fascinated with understanding how our brains work. He's supervised 50 PhD students at Oxford, and he's been cited over 7,000 times. He's got an H index of 40. And last but not least, Bob was recently appointed as the chief scientist at Cambridge Quantum Computing. Now, Bob argues for a paradigmatic shift from reductionism to togetherness. He thinks that the concept of togetherness or abstract systems thinking has suffered in the sciences and especially in physics, where all of the effort has been spent describing the individual, you know, reinforcing fractionation at every possible opportunity. He cites the theory of everything in physics as being the most egregious manifestation of this dogma. Indeed, our own understanding of the human brain has already made it abundantly clear that we should be studying brains in you know not in isolation but rather their interactional dynamics now bob thinks that interactions between systems and quantum mechanics actually carries over naturally to how word meanings interact in natural language he argues that this interaction kind of embodies the phenomenon of quantum teleportation now is this a revolutionary idea or is it a gratuitous use of quantum reasoning well this is something that we're going to be discussing in the show today now bob absolutely hates symbolic reasoning with a passion He has dedicated much of his career to alternative pictorial formalisms for reasoning about categorical logic and quantum circuits. Bob invented ZX Calculus. It's a graphical calculus for revealing the compositional structure within quantum circuits to show entanglement states and protocols in a visually succinct but logically complete way. Von Neumann himself didn't even like his own symbolic formalism of quantum theory, despite it being widely used. Now, ZX Calculus makes it so simple and visual that even high school students uh, can perform quantum reasoning, which is usually the preserve of Hilbert space aficionados. So anyway, um, ZX Calculus is outlined in exquisite detail in Bob's 900-page book, which is called Picturing Quantum Processes. And he also has a new book coming out describing his ZX Calculus, which I've had the pleasure of reading, by the way, aimed at high school students. So keep an eye out for that. Anyway, Bob, um, it's an absolute honor and a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Tell us about your intellectual journey over the last two decades. Oh, la, 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 la. Okay, where do we start? So, uh, I started off as a very non-intellectual teenager, but I was politically active, and I thought the only way anybody would ever listen to me was to go study the most difficult thing at university. So I started engineering. Uh, Then I got a course in quantum physics, and I hated it. I just... Deeply, deeply, deeply hated it, so I didn't want to do it, so I went to study architecture. Then I had an internship in the real world, and I, it worked, and I absolutely hated it. So I said, I don't want to be in the real world. Okay, so then I studied physics anyway, and maths, and uh, I kind of then learned that von Neumann, like you said earlier, kind of hated his own quantum formalism too. So on that point, I went into a journey of trying to come up with a new quantum formalism, This wasn't a particularly popular thing to do in the 90s when the theory of everything people, which you also mentioned at the time, string theoreticians, were completely taking every single job in theoretical physics. So I ended up on the unemployment market. I tried my luck as an artist again, completely failed. Uh, 
I was then very lucky to end up in a computer science department in Oxford in 2000 for the single reason that they wanted to learn some physics there. And I happened to know some category theory and logic, which these computer scientists know. They took me in. Six years later, I was faculty. Uh, I built out a big group. So, I mean, the group at the time of leaving was about 50 people. I mean, it's one of the largest, both quantum groups and category theory and logic groups in the world, I guess. Uh, I became faculty in uh, 2006 and full professor 2008. And then uh, recently I felt it was clear that our work that we had been doing was starting to move into quantum industry with companies like, if you, you see presence of that now in companies like Google and IBM. So I said, probably time for me to mingle in the real world a little bit too. And so that's what I started doing. And also I got really disappointed with the way universities were going. I should add that to it. That's, that's how I find myself where I am now. But I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to be a rock star, but completely failed. <laughs> Could you expand just a bit on, on your disappointment in universities? I'm just really curious about that. Oh, so I don't want to go into too much politics here because this still uh, weighs heavy on my shoulders because it's a fairly recent experience. But like the, the, the incredible increase in management structure basically has changed universities from home to academics to some brand that uses academics as resources. It's, it's just, a, a never, and, and you see these things now also in the UK happening with managements uh, closing entire departments, for example, maths and computer science are being closed in Leicester at the cost of like a big artificial intelligence department. So, so it, that's, that's the sort of, so we, I mean, this, this is probably going to be part of our discussion, but I see a big danger here coming from the, from the machine learning sort of side, which is very similar to the disaster which happened in the 90s coming from the string theory side. That they are like in the heads of like stupid managers are going to push away a lot of other stuff. Because they only see one thing in the news. I saw something very similar. So part of the reason I eventually found my way out of academics is, you know, I used to be naive and I thought it was really the ivory tower where the only thing that mattered was the pursuit of truth. And if you had sufficient evidence or a proof of something that everyone around you just had to accept it because now you have a, you know, a proof for that. But, you know, I started to find out that it's really heavily influenced by, by money and politics, you know, just like every other kind of human endeavor it's it's, and it's 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 so so i can talk about my 20 last years in the in the uk like in the beginning it was academic paradise here really it was academic paradise especially at a place like oxford you genuinely like you you it wasn't really entirely ivory tower but you had entire freedom and what got respected were really cool great ideas because they allowed me in a computer science department to develop this diagrammatic approach to quantum stuff which which was really like the sort of freedom you're hoping for in in even an ideal academic environment, but gradually uh, politicians started to get their hands on funding organizations and that then the funding organization were made more powerful, more, more management staff. They, they got all bigger egos and they start to think that they were actually running the, the academic world, not the academics. They became pretty arrogant too. And these are carried over to the university managements because they were then interacting with this funding management. And, and, and I think the battle is already lost now. I think the battle is really lost. And then also right. department heads become equally stupid after a while. And, and, and I mean, for me, I mean, I saw it going worse and worse, but then the attempt of me to trying to get a split position, half academics, half private sector really showed me how bad it was. Yeah. I had a, one of my, uh, well, let me, let me 
step back a little bit. Someone I knew at MIT who was a professor there. I don't want to sufficiently narrow it to, to get it down, but it had a theory that, that actually this the ball on this kind of got rolling a little bit post-World War II, at least in the United States, because in a large part, World War II was won through technology, right? It was, it was a technological mm-hmm. battle as much as anything else. And so post-World War II, at least, the United States government said, wow, this technology stuff is great. Like, we need more of it. We got to start dumping money, <clears throat> you know, into, into research. And of course, they need some way of figuring out who to get the money to, right? And, and so at that time, they could look at academic publications and say, well, you've got 10 publications in this journal and you've got 15 over here. So we can have a gauge by which we can measure, you know, who we, who we might allocate money to. And of course, game theoretically, this is now going to result in, in a, uh, you know, a kind of unintended side effect where, oh, if they're using papers as the measure of um, publications as the measure by which money is doled out, we got to get some more publications. And so you start to see this explosion and eventually exponential explosion and journals and numbers of publications and, and everything because of this kind of, you know, money corrupting the system. It is a game now. And also the way things are set up with grants and all that, I'm sure that it is, this is a losing game. The amount of time people are putting in grants, not only sort of in work time, but stress time, psychological damage and all that, like 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 broken marriages. <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. Just because of the amount of stress. And it's like you either get it or you don't get it. There's nothing in the middle. And the majority doesn't get it. So they're just working their ass off without any reward, just stress and then a management I mean, I've, I've, I know examples of people who didn't get tenure because they didn't get a huge major grant, while the chances to get it are so small. It's it just it's all absurd and ridiculous. I mean, and it, it's been getting worse. Also, also you mentioned the popul- pop- publication thing. It's a game. It's not about what are the really most promising long-term pieces of research. What is the stuff which people are still going to talk about 20 years from now, 50 years from now? No, it's like, who get that paper? And... Uh, I mean, you gave an example of the X calculus. If you look, for example, this got blatantly rejected wherever we submitted this for a while. If you now look at the sort of things which got accepted for these conferences, these top conferences, just in citations, while ZX, this is not really even citation uh, hungry work, we got way more citations than all other papers together that got accepted. What's the solution to that, though? Because um, we were speaking to Mark Serafin recently, and, and he says that now academics has changed to you almost need to be a media company. You know, OpenAI is a media company, and what we're doing now actually is 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 a form of mediation. So, do academics need to be much better at telling narratives and stories about their work? Uh, I think academics, as we knew it, is never going to come back anymore. That, that that's my that's my belief, and. Uh, in, in general, like anybody in society, these sort of skills indeed need to become part, part of it, at least of part of a team or something like that. There's just no way around it. There's just no way around it. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure so, some branches of mathematics where they still solve like these incredibly difficult problems for which you have to be pretty much an autistic, like whatever. <laughs> that, that's going to stay. That's going to stay, I'm pretty sure. There are some things which just can happen only in an ivory tower or in some little village somewhere in Russia, you know. Uh, so, so these things are, I think, going to stay, but the sort of more exciting stuff is going to move more. I mean, this has all been going, like, like for example, in theoretical physics, you've got institutes like the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in, in, in Waterloo. So more and more private research institutes are going to come out of the ground because it's going to be the only way to get kind of protected 
from all the other pressures. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't put forward the model, but clearly the old model is not working anymore. I mean, it's it's interesting what what you're saying that this also in computer science comes from the AI departments, and I I see this in real time. You know, as a as a very recent graduate of academia, during the time I was here, so from the beginning of my PhD. The Institute of Machine Learning within the Department of Computer Science. It just grew from like one professor to, f to three or four, actually to, to three at that point. And now this institute is like almost as big as the rest of the department together. So just professors get hired and hired and hired for machine learning. And not even that, but all the other groups, even though they are not machine learning, they might be systems or networks or security, they're doing machine learning too. Like they're, they're yeah. like, you know, how, you know, how can we, how can we apply neural networks to malware detection or to routing traffic and so on? Um, you know, I mean, this is to some extent justified because there is some sort of, I would call this an Edison moment going on with machine learning. I mean, the ideas aren't really new. The, the whole idea of a neural network has been around for I don't know how long. But this is the moment, just like Edison could put a, like a city on light, that, that it actually is ready and, and the machines are there to actually bring this in society in a way that's actually going to be transformational for society. So it makes a lot of sense that this, that this is given a lot of attention and all that. But, but now I hear some figures like in the, in, in the public media speak that like a machine learning is going to blow away any other discipline in science and all that like, and, and stuff like that, which was... What the string theoreticians were saying about theoretical physics. And that's, of course, pretty dumb. Like, I mean, it's great. I mean, we should embrace it. It's a fantastic, uh, fantastic tool, the learning tool. But it is what it is. Just like uh, electricity didn't blow away all the other sciences when, when Edison lighted up the city, you know? I mean, it, 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 it enriched them all. People could just work, it's called suddenly work in the dark, you know? <laughs> you could do your philosophy in the dark because Edison gave you light. <laughs> so it did help the, it did, did help all other sciences. And uh, of course, like the we, we've seen this revolution. In, uh, no, I mean, when 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 I think about CS revolution, what happened between like ninety and 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 two thousand ten with IT and and internet and mobile telephony and the availability of laptops, that's transformed science like crazy. But it didn't make computer science like uh, swallowing up all other sciences. No, it, like it was an amazing tool that was provided. So I'm seeing machine learning in a similar way. There's of course conceptually. That's conceptually a very new idea there. This was, this was the same with uh, the, the sophisticated computer science operation systems that you have on a phone. This was also revolutionary. Sort of yeah. know-how and new structures and new ideas that went into that. I, I was meaning to transition a bit because it, this, this thing you know, of, of one discipline coming in, be it string theory, being it, be it AI, uh, that sort of pushes out all the other research some degree is of course justified but it almost seems like a bit too much at points it seems like yeah. you're making a similar point in the world of natural language processing where you know the dominant approaches are sort of uh, let's just all put this into vectors and let's just have them linearly and non-linearly intermingle with each other until we get a number out at the end could you could you you know shed a bit of light on what you think about the current developments. I expected I would actually be confronted about that, but you're actually feeding it in me with the spoon. So 
give it time. So, I mean, I've seen I've seen things evolve because uh, the way I mean, I had no background in natural language at all. There's a lot like sort of a funny story is that I was a postdoc in in 2000 at McGill, uh, and I get, I went there with a plastic bag, and I had no place to stay. So uh, Jim Lombeck, who's like uh, the father of categorical grammars, going back to the 50s and all that, he said, "Oh, Bob, you can stay in my house. It's big, and I live alone." It was at a time in the mid mid 80s. So he was talking to me. I knew him from all the work from before in category theory. He said, yeah, I'm doing language stuff again and blah, blah, blah. I didn't take any attention. Then a few, five, then four or five years later, I was giving a talk at McGill about my diagrammatic quantum formalism, categorical diagrammatic quantum formalism. And I was explaining quantum teleportation. And he said, hey, these are pre-group categorical grammars. He was sitting there himself, like, like, like Lambrick. And he saw me explain teleportation. And he said, these are pre-group categorical grammars. There is nothing mystical about that because you mentioned this in your introduction that I said teleportation, but Lombeck immediately recognized the grammatical structure when I was just trying to explain teleportation in our new way. Uh, I mean, I didn't pick this up, but and then uh, one or two years later, Steve Clark, who, uh, who was until recently at DeepMind and now just joined my team, uh, he was then faculty at Oxford, he explained the problem at the time that there was this complete uh, separation between people starting to do vector model. It was not at all that the neural nets were dominating at the time, by no means. And then more traditional people using, because he had done a lot of parsing, uh, and so people using like uh, grammatical gadgets. And uh, Steve Pullman was too at Oxford, and he, and he had sort of put the challenge to Steve, like, how can we combine those two? And then Steve had been reading a little bit in Smolensky, like the connectionist and all, blah, blah, blah. Smolensky was using tensor products to like bring in some way grammar and, and meaning together. But I mean, it, it was kind of uh, very hard to handle because each sentence with a different grammatical structure would live in a completely different space. So you couldn't make them interact in any way. And, and the space is very humongous. You ended up doing something like Fox space, which is... The space in which the, the huge space in which physicists do quantum field theory, you know. Uh, so, so we then came up together with Steve in a very elegant, with an very elegant way to combine the two, and this really came from the fact, like Lambeck remarked, that the two have exactly the same structure, grammar, in the form of pre-groups and vector spaces. If you organize them in a category, which means you don't have just single vector spaces, but you also compose multiple together. So if you've got a string of words in a sentence, then you kind of compose them together in a bigger space. And uh, if you do it like that, and then you respect your, spa your spaces, also respect the grammatical types from the grammar theories, then you can just like use your grammatical structure as an envelope. It's an envelope is, I think, a good word, an envelope on top of your vector space structure, which guides grammatical compositions. So right. we got ourselves an algorithm then. And we were really excited about that. And at that time, we, we got like a lot of attention. We were on the cover of New Scientist and all that with that stuff, which was really crazy for me because I never made a cover of New Scientist with any physics. <laughs> so I knew nothing about linguistics, but that was sort of... And then and we were in Scientific American. So, so it, it got a lot of attention, but then, then boom happened. And you know what the name of boom was? The name of boom was machine learning. So suddenly people stopped... Uh, I mean, all the attention and the energy was, of course, going there. Uh, now, we, we also had a little problem at the time. And uh, the little problem we had is if you start combining vector spaces with tensor products, they become very quickly very big. They, become, they, they blow up exponentially. 
So, so the people working with us who were doing the experiments, they had really a hard time like building the tensors of things like verbs because these were products of multiple spaces. And it was really hard to get this properly on a classical machine. Uh, with, with all the, I mean, I then start to write a book, this book. Uh, well, and, and, and so to some extent, the attention around this approach went down a bit, and my interest also went more to cognitive modeling personally. Like I, think I saw this, uh, I really wanted to more understand how our brain works. But then, like quantum computers came around, and I mean, we've always known yeah. that if there would be quantum computers, th this stuff wants to live on a quantum computer because essentially it's a quantum model. Can can we address? We'll address the quantum stuff later. So I, I, I think that's that's the yeah, it goes hand in hand. Well, because, just for now, let, let's try let's try and disentangle um, okay, the two. For, for if you if you'll pardon the pun, but yeah. I'm, I'm I'm really interested in this because um, there, there there has been a kind of revolution in NLP over the last decade or so, and and actually there are many people who would argue that it's a complete dead end. This whole vector approach, uh, you know, deep learning and so on. But for decades post Chomsky, um, the theories and the models were derived from the field of linguistics, right? And they were quite introspective and rules-based yeah. in general. And actually, a lot of the stuff you're talking about, this Lambeck calculus or categorical grammar, it yeah. kind of derived from Montague and Chomsky and all this kind of stuff. So um, it changed in the 1990s. Everything became increasingly empirical and statistical and data-driven. And I think the watershed moment for me was Mikhailov's word-to-vec model, which pop popularized the idea of placing words and sentences in a Euclidean vector space. And the results were pretty impressive and they afforded a whole bunch of clever text processing, especially since the Transformers evolution of this idea, which uh, arguably extends the mm -hmm. embeddings beyond just a bag of words, but introducing some structure. Um, but anyway, you have an entirely different view of this. So as I say, you're, you're going back to this category or grammar and, and, and so on. And, um, you know, think we should move back to the Chomsky view. Now, the thing is, well, these old exactly, methods... That, not exactly. Right. Not exactly. Yeah, you can continue, but I just want to say at this point, not exactly, but okay. Just well, say, uh, I mean, if we did go back to this um, this grammar view of, of natural language processing, I think the reason that we abandoned it was that there, there were quite a few edge cases, right? Doesn't always work. This has to do with what one means by symbolic reasoning, or uh, let's say non. Let's let me call it non-statistical, because I want to be, put a much bigger umbrella there than the sort of going back to. So, of course, a lot of the traditional work, like uh, from Lambeck and Chomsky and all that. They, they, they had a very propositional logic starting point. So a lot of the sort of structures were very similar to propositional logic. Now, one doesn't have to sort of do empirical work or anything like that. If one really looks carefully at the mathematical structure, then one sees that there is a complete mismatch, a complete and utter mismatch between, on the one hand, vector space-like structures, and on the other hand, propositional deductive systems. They just don't, they don't fit together. There's no way to get the two together. So if you want to sort of take on the one hand anything like symbolic propositional systems, be it like categorical grammars or anything like that, on the other hand, vector spaces, you're never going to get them together in a decent way. But that's why I think any attempt of people to combine them, just, just approaching them like that, was bound to fail. These are, these are things computer scientists understood for a very long time on, on a very abstract level. Like if you want to combine probabilistic semantics with non-deterministic semantics, it doesn't fit together. It doesn't work. They just, they don't like it. So someone has to start at a different level. So, so our starting point is not anything deductive, propositional, symbolic, or anything like that. Our starting point is a, what we call compositional structure. 
and and that's really try try to see uh, how things flow within a sentence without having any logical pres presumptions or anything like that about that. Just see how, how, how things flow in each other. And this is very recent work, which, which, which actually we're just finishing the papers uh, for now. We actually went back to look at grammatical structure, Lombeck, Chomsky and all that, and we saw that this is full of unnecessary bureaucracy from the perspective I was just talking about, like just understanding what are the sort of backbones of the flow of meanings between different words, within, within, also within text. So a lot of that is, uh, and now this brings me back to the grammatical paradigm, that we humans, poor creatures, can only speak one-dimensional. We can only put words in a string. We can't, put, we can't speak like words in a two-dimensional sort of surface. We can't do that. But if you carefully analyze grammar, then you see that the real essence, what, what's really universal, lives in a plane. It doesn't live on a line. And you may think, okay, therefore it's more complex because it's two-dimensional. No, it's actually you take something two-dimensional and you just squash it into one dimension. And then there's a lot of order bureaucracy which comes in because you have to decide what comes for what. And as you know, in different languages, different decisions have been made, in, made on this bureaucracy, for example. On the other hand, these decisions also come with stylistic options. Options on how to organize different things, to do your poetry so you can get your rhyming word at the end and all that. So there's a lot of positives about this bureaucracy, but it's, it makes it incredibly complex to handle in any scientific manner. So that aspect alone, I think, is the reason of the big failure of trying to combine or, or integrate this sort. I mean, this is something machine learning is really good about, this bureaucracy like learning styles, learning stylistic features. They're very good at do, do this with images. And so, so that's the stuff you don't want to put in your fundamental structure. So we are now, we are now so you know how we discover this? By trying to, by putting grammatical structure on a quantum computer, when we have to put it in circuit form. We actually saw that a lot of garbage from the grammatical calculi vanished. It was, it was lost, it was lost. So, so it was kind of accidental by forcing the, the grammar into a quantum circuit that we saw that actually, uh, and so, so my, my new attempt there, which is still very much developing, is like to start from this, I would call this machine grammar, this two-dimensional grammar. That's how a machine, that's how machines want to talk to each other with some sort of grammatical content. And it's so much simpler than the sort of usual, all the stuff like Lambeck, Chomsky, Montague is so much way more complicated than necessary. Could you maybe give us an example to make this a bit explicit you know i i see like the point that i understand so far is that let's let's assume for a moment that language is really good or or would be really simply displayed in two dimensions and then you know since we can only put words one after another we we sort of have to have all this complicated stuff um it is not really concrete to me yet. To draw pictures, you have to draw pictures. So, 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 just to give you a simple example, if you got a sentence like Alice, Alice loves Bob, uh, you got two Ellen agents, Alice and Bob. So this is what the story is about. So think of a circuit where, where, where your, I mean, I'm thinking some sort of quantum circuit. So, so you got your two lines, they're Alice and Bob. So you start off, there is no connection between Alice and Bob. We, we don't know who Alice is, we don't know our Bob. Think of it like so, so maximal noise. Okay, suddenly the sentence conveys a new idea to us. Alice loves Bob. So it's as if there is a gate, like a logic gate, 
that now acts on Alice and Bob and connects them, like a C-not gate. It entangles them. Okay, next sentence. Bob loves Claire too. Oh, that's another gate between Bob and Claire. Next sentence. Alice slaps Bob. Of course, she's not happy with the Claire situation. That's another sentence. So, and, and the meanings throughout this text, yeah. the meanings of Alice are evolving. You know, Bob and Alice are evolving and they get entangled with each other because of the new relationships emerging. And we, okay, this is a very simple example for, from simple subject object verbs, but we got an algorithm to translate all of English. But could, could, I, could I touch on that then? Because that, that, I think that's, that's a wonderful example. So I think the genius of Montague was that he showed that Alice could be replaced by any other entity that the grammar allowed, right? Any other noun phrase. So you could replace Alice with a girl in the sixth grade or sixth grade with red hair yeah. and a long ponytail or some beautiful girl from my school. So that, 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 was, that was what the formalism was, was about. So, so the meaning would be fixed. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, th this is not entirely true anymore here because we have to keep track on who Alice is throughout the text. So, so in the Montague stuff, you, you abstract it away, like, of, a, of, of, of this is just a noun type. So it's for, for, for us, it's very important which, which different nouns are. So we have to do some resolution there, some, some resolution of it. But, but the more important thing is they also had something like a unique sentence type. That doesn't hold for us anymore, neither. Because the sentence type will be determined by the sort of nouns which occur in your sentence. And, and so the circuit actually, the gate, the gate applies to those nouns which appear in the sentence. So, so it's a little bit more syntactic structure. We, so we have to label our nouns in order to do what we do. We have to be flexible with sentence type because if you got an intransitive verb, the sentence type will typically be a single noun. If you got a transitive verb, it will be a double noun. If you got a non-transitive verb, it will triple nouns. So, so there is a variation there. There's a variation right. there because one one of the one of the big difficulties we had initially in our experiments with the, the our model which combined grammar and meaning is we didn't know what a sentence type was. We had no good candidate for a sentence type, and the story I'm just telling you now with the circuit solves all that. There is no real the sentence type is kind of the scope the scope of the part of the world where your sentence applied to, so it's local. While in the old approach, it was a global thing. It was sort of the universe, conceptually speaking. You can never deal with something like that because it's infinitely large, conceptually speaking. That's why, I mean, Montague semantics was really just trying to squeeze logic back into language, quantifiers and all that stuff. And that's exactly where I think uh, it works really bad when you go to vectors. So most of the Montague stuff is really gone if you pass to vectors. You can't retain that. Okay, so, you know, earlier you kind of made this uh, reference to the sort of uh, propositional paradigm, if you will, kind of imposes all this garbage that can sort of be, you know, abstracted or eliminated when it's kind of in the, the quantum paradigm. But, you know, part of the reason for the development of, of those paradigms was that, like Tim brought up, if you instead that sentence said something like, a girl in the sixth grade with blonde hair, you know, uh, loves Bob, you're not going to actually be able to resolve the meaning of that until much further on. Like in your circuit, you know, it's going to have to maintain a bunch sure. of low-level entanglement that much further on, maybe seven layers up in the analysis or something, um, sure. needs to get resolved. So it's kind of like the garbage actually has just gone from top down to bottom up. It's like now we're maintaining a bunch of garbage bits at the bottom that are entangled that actually much later on will, will be eliminated. You know, uh, is that fair? Yeah, 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 yes, exactly. 
So, so one of the nice things of, uh, of a quantum-like formalism, and which goes back to von Neumann, is that uh, it, 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 so, so vectors, everybody knows what vectors are. Like, and then von Neumann realized very early on when developing quantum mechanics that there are many situations that you don't know exactly which vector you're dealing with. So, you, so something happens and you don't know exactly right. which vector. And so he invented this thing called density matrices. Density matrices are a way to encode ambiguity on top of vector spaces. So it's intrinsic in our approach to, I mean, I think it's the way forward to actually use density matrices instead of vectors. So they have a lot of advantages. First of all, they allow you to encode ambiguity. So whatever ambiguity, be, be it with pronoun resolution or be it with like uh, lexical ambiguity, it, it's all implicit in this density matrix formalism and you can wait until it gets resolved at a later stage. So, so you just carry the different yeah. options around until they get resolved. This is something we actually did experiments with in 2012, 2013, to the extent you can do them on a classical computer, because again, your spaces become bigger. Again, density matrix, you tensor two spaces. Uh, quantum computer comes for free. If you got normal vectors, you got density matrix too. If you got like, a, <laughs> uh, if you got separable vectors, you got entangled vectors too. All comes for free. So it's, so it's a big part of this story to make it feasible. So a couple of points on, on this. Um, by the way, the, the main reason why I think deep learning is broken and, and our friend Dr. Walid Sabah um, has certainly influenced my view on this is, is the missing text problem. I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but in language, we don't say everything we mean, right? So for example, the corner table wants a beer. We know that the corner table is, is a person. We've done that deductive reasoning. So spoken language is extremely ambiguous. It's actually a form of compression. You know, we transmit the minimum amount of information and the, re the receiver can decompress the, the meaning using reasoning out of all of the possible meanings right so using your grammar and formalism for NLP is, is in some sense ignoring this key problem right because being able to do the semantics is not helpful if you don't have all the information in the first place NLU is about uncovering in my opinion the single human thoughts behind an utterance and um, this formalism by the way um, um, inspired by Montague he himself admitted that figuring out different meanings in different contexts was not what he was even working on he was working on building a kind of formal natural language compiler he admitted that there would need to be an understanding module on the top mm. so this is something yeah. that affects deep learning as well but does surely it affects your, your approach as well sure sure yeah i mean so, so from the start the sort of experiments we had been doing was always focusing on ambiguity so there's different levels of ambiguity so there's first the ambiguity of like a bank can be a queen can be a rock band and queen can be a royal and queen can be a bee and so that's level one ambiguity then then you got ambiguity of parsing like if i say black metal fan this can be a, a, a metal device, and this can also be, uh, yeah, somebody goes to a black metal concert, and if you look at it, like, they parse differently. To start, they parse differently. The, the, the they are two they're not just different meanings, they're different grammatical structures. So you need to be able to keep that into account. And, and the sort of, if, if, if you think of your vector space formalism as part of, a, of the way people have set up a quantum formalism with density matrix, there's no problem with that. Quantum information theory is all about dealing with these ambiguities. So you've got a channel. A channel is always noisy. It's always mixed. you always got ambiguities and all that. So formally, you can actually deal with these things. Uh, we actually are now starting to put this on, uh, in experiments. The quantum computers aren't good enough, so we're, we're putting this on classical machines. The, the only thing we can really do at the moment, we're putting it on classical machines, and we're starting to play around with this. But I know the, the places where... Uh, 
where, where, where this formalism at, at successes, the most successes in experimentally so far was about disambiguation and, and things to do with ambiguity. It's been pretty good at that from the start. So, but we haven't pushed this far enough, but I completely agree with you. So what you're talking about now is the ambiguity of a developing piece of text, for example, where you don't have, where, where there's lots of stuff you don't know. And maybe the black metal fan only occurs like 10 lines later. And so, so you really need to go back, uh, fix your, carry your possible grammatical parsings around. And, and like in some sort of tree, think of it as a tree with your possibilities. And then later branches of the trees vanish away. But, but the thing about density matrices and, and, and what's called completely positive map is that all that stu stuff got bun get bundled together in one map. All these branches get bundled together in one map and they exploit the linear structure for that. They, they actually exploit the linear structure to do this in an economic way. That's an invention from von Neumann from the 1920s, which, which, which is remarkable to me that that piece of, of math has never been used outside of physics. It's, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking, especially since everybody's now working with vectors everywhere. Well, I think what, what there, is, there is a level of ambiguity on, on top of that, and maybe, maybe uh, Tim's point was more to that, in that in a lot of text, if you just read the text and you can parse it perfectly, like I can give you the parse tree, you know, all of the, mm -hmm. and I can give you all the references and every, all of that, all the meanings of the ambiguities of words, there is still a lot of things that is not anywhere in the text, right? Where you need to know the world. So like when, when Tim tells me something, he makes some assumptions about who I am and what I know, and then he doesn't say the things anymore. Like, you know, he, he texts me like, you know, we're on in 60 minutes. Like this, this means nothing if it's not in the context of us sure. being, you know, so how, yeah. how, how does this go into a system that sort of deals in, in, this, in this circuit structure? I, th I think the information is not in the data. I, th I think that's I what, agree, I agree. what I, 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 so, so to some extent, I mean, part, part of this is embodiment. So one of the things we learned from the old generation, from older generation AI is the need for embodiment. So one thing we are, we are working on now, so I mentioned the density matrices as one kind of alternative to vector meanings. So another thing which, again, I'm like working on literally today is like replacing vector spaces, vector space meaning with something which is more like a, uh, giving, giving, gi giving the structure of the space or the representation space the illusion that it actually has a body, a body that can move in physical space, a body, a body that can observe physical space around it so that you can actually point to things, which is a little bit like what you were just referring to with the studio. Thing that the ability to, for example, use your arms and point uh, to smell, to 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 hear, to to taste. So we're building new spaces which have like taste. And I mean, some of this is based on work by by Garden Force. So it's a, so this is this cognitive psychologist who came up with certain convex spaces for representing things which are much closer to our human senses. So what you want to do then is try to learn your stuff relative to these spaces. Again, I'm not saying I'm not talking about I keep saying I'm not talking about going back to rule-based, bring propositional reasoning about space. No, nothing like that. So you bring in the context of space, space as a structure. There's a hell of a lot of structure. Like just, just read Euclid's book. There's a hell of a lot of stuff going on there, 
but you don't want to stick all the, the rules of Euclid's book in your system. No, you just teach, you just tell the system, well, instead of a vector space, uh, part of our representation space is the three, three plus one D physical space we live in. Let's learn again that space, and then probably you're going to get inferences which come from the structure of the space. And the way the space is related to taste. So if close, close to the loo, it stinks. That's stuff you want to get. I, I think this is fascinating because the, the, the first thing is uh, there's some question about whether we should have um, a discrete inner loop or a continuous inner loop because this whole idea of vector spaces, um, as you say, that there might be ambiguity in the representation, but certainly in the original human thought behind an utterance, there is no ambiguity at all. It, it's a binary decision. There was one meaning, no degrees of freedom, no amb ambiguity whatsoever. So um, you're talking about projecting into these spaces Spaces. And with the missing information problem, vector spaces aren't enough. You have to perform something like a syllogism or some basic reasoning to fill in the information as a function of some common knowledge. Uh -huh. So you don't, you can't just have the vector spaces, right? You need something else. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, exactly. That's what I mean. And so, so the way we think about these spaces now is you've got all, all these different components like physical space, maybe smells, maybe taste, maybe other sort of modes of representation, and then. Again, you, you, like, like most, most vector space representations are fairly monolithic. So you got your big space in which you represent your different meanings. It didn't change that much, much since like the bag of words model there. Like the way we think of this is you got these different factors of your spaces and all the things between them are entangled. For example, a banana, a banana, I mean, if a banana is green, it's going to be bitter and it's going to be hard. So there are these different correlations between the different spaces. If it's black, it's going to be very soggy and, and, and slimy and whatever. If it's yellow, it's going to be fairly sweet and, and tasty. So, so, so you've got these relationships across, across these different sort of factors, and that's going to give you like entailment power, a predictive entailment power. That's the idea. Of course, these are ideas we are just starting to play around with. I, have to, I mean, we, they were in papers of us like four or five years ago, but, but we are starting to only now play around this experimentally. And it's, it's going to give a completely different paradigm. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that. So, so the way I think about new science is the most stupid thing you can do if you come up with something new is going to sort of directly compete with what already exists. Because a new thing will tell, will tell you it by itself what it wants to be used for. And this may not be necessarily the same thing as the state of the art is doing now. It may be a completely different thing. For what it is okay. good. I mean, if you look at the history of science, it's always been like that. People, I mean, people, people, people invented classical mechanic to 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 actually to sail with their boats, following the stars. You know, that was the that was the that was the purpose. That was the purpose of like like uh, Copernicus and 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 Kepler. It was about coming up with good maps for both. And by the way, because we're talking statistically driven stuff here, Ptolemy's model was much better than either Copernicus and Kepler. Ptolemy's model, going back like 800 years before, was, was a statistically purely, was Byzantine culture, statistically driven uh, approach, was way better than anything Copernicus and Kepler ever did. As far as using ships, uh, using the, the data in ships went. But, but, you know, I mean, people don't realize this, but um, uh, Ptolemy knew relativity in some way. Because the data represented like relativistic corrections. It did. It was just statistical data. So they were, they were doing curve fitting. They were doing curve fitting on epicycles. 
So, so I mean, I've had some discussions, and the sort of discussion we now are having uh, against the sim uh, between the symbolism and and so, so I like to use the word aware. I'm sort of saying like our system is grammar aware, and uh, the thing I was more recently talking about was our we want to be space aware, like physical space aware, and then people say yes, but but but. Deep learning networks are also grammar aware. The grammar is there and it reproduces the grammar. But it's, it's grammar aware in the same way as Ptolemy was, was, was relativity aware. It reproduces the correct predictions of relativity theory without Ptolemy having a clue about the actual theory of relativity. So, so that, that's sort of the difference. Sort of the, it's not a theory sort of popping out of your, of, of your statistical system. Your statistical system reproduces the predictions of the theory but it's not sort of aware of the theory. And, and, and that's, that's kind of a subtle difference, I say. I, I mean, awareness is where, 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 you, you, where you can actually make inferences. That's what we humans do. Like, like we make inferences because we are aware of the physical space. And what you were just giving the example of like uh, start recording is exactly about this awareness. Like knowing that, 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 that Yannick is there in the studio and can push a button or something like that. I'm I'm really glad that you said what you did for the last few minutes because, you know, going back to like kind of the academic stuff we talked about earlier, part of the problem is people have this tendency to really want to find silver bullets, right? Like they want the one true method that will solve all their problems. And I think there's really, if if we step back and be objective about it, there's overwhelming evidence throughout all of our history that there are no silver bullets, that things are hybrid systems that require... Exactly. And so, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're not saying that, that this paradigm is the silver bullet that's going to solve all NLP and more importantly no, NLU, no, natural no. language understanding problems, but it's a very important tool in the toolbox that happens to very nicely map a part of the mathematics of that domain to quantum computing so we can get a very good, efficient implementation of a piece of it but we still may need to do other types of computation around of on course. top of that, mixed in with it. Is that true? I mean, of course. Like, I mean, okay. I mean just think about like, like uh, cylindrical versus, versus Cartesian coordinates, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's something like that. Like, like, you know, one is useful in one place, one is useful in another place. I mean, I said it earlier, like the stylistic stuff machine learning is really good at. Well, like emulating ACDs or emulating uh, uh, Picasso or something like that. It's incredibly good. And like, for example, in the linguistic context I'm talking about, that, I mean, it would be stupid of us to try to in any way emulate these abilities of machine, of deep learning, like to reproduce style. That's why I'm so happy with our new approach to grammar where we actually get rid of style. So we say, okay, that's, that's your domain. Let's see now if we can make the, the, real, the real core backbones of, of, of grammatical interaction and I want to say something more about it later, uh, present. Are there things we can do better? That's a question. Are there things we can do better? And, okay. and, and places where I think, we can, I think we can be much more economical. We can be, for certain applications, we can be much more economical because you don't need to learn all the stuff. I mean, if you can, if you can take something because you know it already, maybe it doesn't work perfect in all contexts. Maybe you really need this ambiguity in certain contexts, but there will be contexts where it's actually good to have to actually get that piece for free so that you can focus on something else. Uh, same with the physical space. Maybe there are contexts where it's much better to try to learn the physical space because the space is so fucked up. Uh, but but, but for, for many contexts, getting this bit piece of information, like, like thank you, Euclid, like you did this all for us, like, okay, let's, let's make use of it. 
I mean, it's good to have it. I mean, I mean, are, are you? I mean, just to get another context, like we have theories of physics, like relativity and quantum mechanics. Are we now going to go to a paradigm that we're going to forget about them and say, "Oh no, let's machine learning do all of this again"? <laughs> I mean, it'd be stupid. We'd be stupid. Yeah. So some people but, want to, but no, no. I know, I know. I know there are people who actually believe that. I know there are people who believe that. Like the, the problem is with these deep learning models is they're they're a bit like a parlor trick. They do a lot of things. So in the context of language processing, they they have some world knowledge, for example. They have you were saying they they have the illusion of understanding grammar they don't really they're just probabilistic likelihood models they're just predicting the next word in a sequence so they're extremely limited but they appear on the surface to be doing very very clever things right but but the alternative is we 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 take a step back and we start explicitly and discreetly formalizing grammar again and then we get all the original problems we had like yannick you were saying it's np hard for doing the constituency processing and doing the past trees and all this kind of stuff right i never this is the wrong grammar this is the bureaucratically overloaded grammar the complexity comes from the bureaucratic overload so so all these things have to be revisited again so so now now to be now, now it, it's not just about so so this is the more important it's not just about grammar i don't think this grammar is, is something very specific to language at all so because when we start building our spatial model uh basically that's a theory of spatial relationships like how different things can be related in space a priori this has nothing to do with language the priori because you so these just entities in space and they have certain relations uh but it, this very naturally follows the same sort of grammatical umbrella. It's very natural to give it the same um, uh, grammatical umbrella. We've got a paper from a few years ago, it's called uh, Interacting Conceptual Spaces, and we play the same game for uh, Garden Force Conceptual Spaces. They, they obey very naturally the same umbrella. For me, the piece of grammar which remains, maybe we shouldn't call it grammar, maybe it's, it, maybe it's kind of bad PR to even call it grammar, whatever remains in the circuits, it's, it's, an interaction, it's an interaction structure in the world. So, so just think of the, of the like, like you've got a prey, you've got a predator, and you've got a hunt. It's some sort of logical process, you know? Which, so so there, is, there is the process, it takes, in, it takes in two things, a prey and a predator, and there is a goal. So it's some sort of logical entity. And many, many things if you, uh, in the world have this sort of logical structure. And you can bring in more sort of grammatical ideas they, they will then bring in like things like, a, if you think have like adverbs and adpositions and things like that, they bring like higher order aspects of that same process. But it doesn't have to do anything with language per se. So what we're trying to retain is more sort of a, stru uh, a structure of reality, which I wouldn't call it a logic because it has no propositional uh, uh, in, in the sort of uh, Greek Aristotle way type of deductive power. It's really a way of fitting things together in the world. And, and the, world, the word I use is compositional, of course. Uh, it's a way of fitting things in a, in, in a rational way together in the world. And you can, you can come up with a model of physical space, which follows, that, that follows a template. It's built in, in language. It's not a surprise because like our granddaddies, they were like trying to get down the mammoth. They were screaming at each other. So the language probably developed by their spatial sort of uh, considerations. Because if they didn't communicate their spatial consideration trying to get down the mammoth, the mammoth killed them all, you know? So, so it was a matter of surviving, like language emerged from like survival. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, some really like, there, there are too many interesting things here. I, um, 
going back to what you were saying with some people want to go back and try to do relativity, throw it out, replace it with machine learning. I mean, the, the absolute madness of the world is that something like relativity even exists, right? That, that someone can write down like one formula. It's like, oh, here, just do, you know, this, uh, this metric tensor with the fourth dimension negative and bada bada boom. It describes the entire world. Like it describes the, the, like the, a wide range and like the, the completeness almost of the world. Now, th my question to you is, do you think something like this is even possible for how messy human language is or something like human language? And second, what in your formalism or in your system, what is the required amount of human input? Like how much do you as a human have to, you know, program, let's say the structure of the world into the system for, for it to be able to then understand the world? So, so about to your first, human language is a very messy thing. So I completely agree. Uh, so what, what we are trying to dig out is, is the non-messy part of it. Is there any way we can identify a non-messy part? And like I said, we already threw away this bureaucracy, which is language dependent, which is stylistic dependent, and all these things. And I think we got, we got rid of a lot of the sort of noise of it, mm. the, a lot of the sort of difficult stuff to really capture. And like I said before, I think part of the reasons people who have been trying to bring in grammar into, in, into sort of a statistical uh, schemes, I think they probably did something wrong that they actually still believed that, that there was anything deductive going on there because there's no way structurally you can ever blend this with a linear structure of a vector space. It's just never going to work. And the second part is they took the, they also were bringing in all this bureaucracy, which was unnecessary. So I'm, I'm really talking, so what I'm talking about is really a new theory of grammar. I'm going to be bloody arrogant here. I think it's the best thing in grammar that happened since Montague. And, and <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm super arrogant. I, I believe this. I've been telling this to people and, and person I'm working on. I think this is the biggest thing in grammar since Montague. Uh, uh, I mean, I believe this. I mean, I, I can't, we're writing it down. We're writing it down. It's a really big deal. And it's incredible if you look at the pictures, the amount of complexity that comes in by putting sting on, things on the line. It's incredible. We, we, we can depict this incredible complex network just by trying to stick a single sentence on the line, how complex the process is. Uh, on the second, so that was the first question. So, so, so the thing is that there, there is something underneath, I think like relativity, because it's, 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 it's some sort of logic of how the world works. It's not language. Language takes that in. Language uses that as a backbone. Language is developed against that logic. So bring in that logic into language will help understand language and simplify the understanding of language. But it's not all of language. It's not language. So that's why I completely disagree with Montague and, 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 and Chomsky and all the ordinary ones that there is anything special about the structure of grammar with respect to humans. But I'm now talking about like a, the distilled clean structure, which maybe we shouldn't call grammar, but what I'm still kind of calling grammar. There's language, there's reality, and there's meaning, right? And I can understand how this yeah. compositional analysis could tell you something about, um, let's say, our language. And maybe you could use that as a proxy for reality in some sense, although that's a bit of yes. a leap. But yes. what, what about, you know, syntax isn't semantics, right? Isn't, isn't, isn't that the fundamental problem? I mean, I never really, I mean, in the way we're doing things, that separation doesn't really exist anymore that much. Because a lot of the... Of, of the stuff we put in the in the domain of, of, of meaning actually is, is, is structure itself. 
So so that, that in so so in in the old fashioned way of doing grammar, you really had sort of you got the types, and then 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 you got sort of your your your, your proof of of correctness of the sentence and all that, and that all lived outside of the meaning of the words. In we have to dig inside the meaning of the words and look at internal wirings without, within what usually we would call semantics to make it work, to actually get our circuits. There is an enormous amount of structure within the words themselves, within the semantics. And it seriously reduces the complexity of all these things. Because I mean, that, 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 why, why did the vector bag of words work so well, for example? It, it took like an adjective. Uh, and a noun and a verb all in the same space. There are two arguments for it. On the first hand, if you look at type theoretic structure or something like that, you say that this is absurd because an, an adjective is something which changes a noun into a different noun. It acts on a noun, so you expect it to be a map. But then again, when you say red, like as making something red, or, or a lot of these adjectives actually are kind of nouns in content. So you actually have to go inside the map of the adjective stick this noun in there, and then do some wiring. And so that actually makes everything much more economical. And that's sort of part of, of our whole scheme, that we go inside the meanings and then do some structure inside the meanings, which sort of then uh, kind of wires up with the, with the grammatical structure and, and causes the incredible collapsing complexity. So the two come together. Now, there are, I mean, there are simple things in English language, like the way we order adjectives. There is a clear structure on there. So, so that there are these seven or eight classes and we put it, and this again comes, this is kind of relate. I see this as related when I say the meaning space is sort of factor in different substructures. Some are about size, some are about shape, some are about color, some are, and these are really these factors which come in into the space of adjective. So that's something we have to recognize. And again, the order is what you could call syntax because it, it sort of tells you rules on how to order things. Well, it's connected, but well, what defines where you live are meanings. Uh, another example are, for example, prepositions. Most prepositions have spatial connotation, next, above, in. So they seem to make direct reference to spatial structure. If you're ever going to do inferences which involve prepositions, then you need to have some spatial awareness. So th these all mixed up, these all mixed up syntax and semantics. Yeah, there, there's a couple things that I kind of want to talk about here. So, I, you know, I think it's a bit, uh, you know, it's a bit of an optical illusion to say that the complexity disappears because what's happened is you you replace the complexity with entanglement. You know, I mean, so the complexity is all there. It's just in a quantum mechanical structure that you're kind of taking advantage of. And because one thing I want to avoid is, you know, in the beginning, I started to, to feel that you were not a reductionist. And I was happy about that because, you know, you talked about togetherness, which to me is synonymous with at least holism or emergence or this kind yeah. of thing. I mean, the meaning of a word by itself is, you know, blatantly not sufficient to define well, the meaning. I completely agree. I completely agree. Okay. So, so, I mean, we are maintaining this, this complexity, the ensemble complexity, if you will, the emergent complexity. Yes. It's being maintained for us kind of, you know, for free, although IBM would probably disagree with that, but, you know, for free by quantum sort of structures. When I said the reduction of the complexity in using your terminology now, it's like, th think of, think of the, the meanings as some sort of holes. Initially, they're sort of, we don't know what they are. They're the de Wittgenstein, they're determined by their context to, to, to a great extent, right? They're, they're all sort of fixed status okay, things. Good. So, so what I'm talking about is the complexity of the network that connects them together and which then allows you to sort of, for example, uh, variationally learn from the context what your meanings are. 
So it's the net, the complexity of the network around them which simplifies. That's it. But it, but that's that's exactly that's like I said, that's exactly. So it, so the way we got to it was actually by having to put this stuff on a quantum computer because a quantum computer forces first to go two dimensional into a circuit, and that this is a very interesting story. I think people may not realize like a. When you get a course on quantum computing or quantum quantum mechanics, then they teach you like, a, oh, measurement. You can't get information out of your system because if you measure, you disturb, and and you'll never get. It's impossible to sort of get the the state the state out of your quantum system. Now it turns out in in, in present day quantum computing, it's incredibly difficult to get your state inside the machine too. It's not just getting it out; it's getting it in too. And and the quantum computing people. Uh, who are trying to do sh relatively short-term stuff in chemistry and all that, the only solution they came up with to actually get something in a machine is using basically learning. So, so what you do is like uh, you've got some network, which is typically a circuit, like a, a quantum circuit, and then you've got variables. Now, these variables, they're actually classical variables in the sense that they are gate settings. They're gate settings. And then you basically train you train your circuit and you adjust your gate settings. And that's the only efficient way at the moment people can get uh, data hmm, in a quantum computer. So it's, it, I don't think machine learning would ever have, the machine learners would have thought that they, they were actually coming up with a paradigm to actually get stuff into a quantum machine. <laughs> I don't think they never thought, because you're not doing anything. It's purely for reasons of encoding your data that you use learning. So it's, it's kind of a funky thing. So now let me explain what, what so these quantum computers are, are, are quite small at the moment. Like you can't do much, you can't go very deep. And, and what people do now, uh, typically is they take one of these circuits and they kind of think of it as a neural network if, if you want to. So it's just some network, some circuit with some gates and all that. But typically they don't mean anything. It's just whatever works best. Just like in typical learning, you take the structure of the network, the layers, whatever works best. Whatever works best, but it's 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 very hard to assign an individual meaning to every node in your network. Like like this is Alice, this is Bob. It doesn't work like that, you know. Like they are just nodes there. So our networks on the quantum computer, they 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 represent like like the interact the grammatical interactions and all that between the different things. If you want the agents within the text, so they on the nodes represent they are meaningful. So that's where we get a big advantage, because this you have to use them. There's just no other way to get your stuff into a quantum computer by then using these circuits. But for us, these circuits mean something. For all the rest, they, they mean they mean the non-meaning part of language. <laughs> if you no, they, they're the channels in which the meaning flows. They're the channels in which the meaning flows. Mm -hmm. And then, the like you say, the meanings of the word are learned by twisting these variables. So we learn, we learn the words within the broader context. So they are literally learned within the context of all the, of, of the entire bigger piece of information you get. So it completely appeals to your holistic view. Right. Sure. We had no choice. It was not even like that we chose to do it like that. We had no other choice. Right. So the entanglement is maintaining the complexity. I, I have a question about that though, which is that do you I mean, is it really the case that the entanglement that so happens to be quantum mechanics just happens to exactly align with the entanglement that we need for natural language processing? Is that just accidental? It, it isn't me who picked vector spaces there. <laughs> I mean, people start to work with vector spaces. So, I mean, you're, you're already very close. If you then, I think the composition, the composition, the tensor structure is canonical. That comes like from, from, from the way grammar and all that works. That's, that's just canonical. That, 
So the tensor product is canonical. So you got your vector spaces, your tensor product, that's canonical. What is not canonical is that suddenly there's complex numbers around. That, 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 that doesn't come from standard NLP practice. Although I have seen that um, there have been some papers where people use complex numbers in classical NLP to extend parameter spaces. And also the, the, there is some work by, by Trio, a French guy, I think, Trio, or where, where if you then start to factor uh, entity embeddings and all like that, that to do this properly, you actually need complex numbers purely for analytical reasons. So they do come in. They do come in in classical NLP too. But that's where the conceptual justification is much less. That's where the conceptual. But I mean, I mean, let let. So so so. Okay. So so one of the things I don't understand, like in the way, um, and and you don't even have to think quantumly. You can think classical classical probabilistically. Like if you got two things, like let, let's just not talk. Let, let's talk ideologically more about like how sent how meaning should interact and stuff like that. If we work with idealized meanings, so typically you got Alice and Bob, and then maybe Alice and Bob do something. But the way Alice and Bob are treated in any vector embedding is pretty much on their own. So you've got an Alice vector and you've got a Bob vector. It doesn't make sense to me because they've got a pre... They, they, they probably... They didn't just come from different planets and, and found each other. There is like a prehistory which connects them. And the way to connect that prehistory, like in classical probability, is some sort of correlations existing between them. That's not at all present in the way, the way people now do NLP. Now... Why not? It's probably very costly to do that. It's incredibly costly to do that. If you want to encode all these correlations, it, it, I mean, you get an exponential blow up. And, and that's, mm -hmm. that's something. So but I think it's natural to do that. It's natural to assume that your different uh, actors in, in whatever, whether you play, have some sort of pre-existing correlations with each other. It's always like that. And, and I mean, so... so uh, but that also tells me that 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 the whole idea of static meanings is something we should go away from. So so the last so 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 we we are very much thinking in terms of not just like holistic meanings but also dynamical meanings. That's cool. So I've got a paper called the mathematical of the mathematics of text structure, which is from before the sort of talk. I mean, this was actually the start of trying to t turn grammar into into circuit-like things with evolving meanings. Uh, and, and it, it sort of then starts to subsume the grammatical structure. In that paper already, you see that some of the complexity of, uh, of, of your traditional grammatical calculi is like kind of vanishing. It's, 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 it's simply that, I mean, the, you have to think, you've got all this stuff on the line. So, I mean, a here is a funny thing. Like uh, so a collaborator of me, like, like um, Mernusha Adrazadeh, she, she analyzed like uh, the grammar in different languages. And how far away words are communicating to each other in a single sentence. So you take huge sentences. Like in English, in English it's all kind of efficient because the, the English are all sort of very diplomatic, efficient people. If you go to something like Persian, then you have words on one side of the sentence, like a humongous sentence, which is informing a word on the other side of the sentence. Now, like these distances in the circuit, they go away. They all vanish. That, that's basically what happened. So, 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 so in, in, in a lot of the traditional grammar, you got this hopping from one sentence to another, very complex, boom, 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 boom. That all vanishes. That's what I mean by the complexity. It's sort of a much more efficient way of communicating between the words in a, in, in, in a sentence if you just put them in a plane. That's what I mean. But, but all the rest stays the same, you know, like, like you can think of your words as holes. and It's just the network which, 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 which glues them together, which becomes much simpler.
that, 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 that's essential. So it's a different notion of complexity. If you're talking about complexity of representing the meanings, of course, the entanglements are going to, just like I was saying, like, oops, that's <laughs> too much hand action. They were sort of, a, the entanglements are going to be humongous. They're, 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 not, they're exponentially huge. They're not maintainable on a classical machine. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, there's probably lots of way, ten, tensor contraction tricks and, and, and all the sort of modern stuff dealing with tensor, which will help you a lot with that. We, have, we, haven't, we haven't really gone enough in it. It's something we... So I'm actually, I actually really started to build up this team uh, only a year, year and a half ago. And, and now we're starting to look properly in all these things with like a dedicated team in the industry. And like Steve Clark, I mean, he has a lot of experience in practical NLP by working many years at the... I mean, he has done his whole life like practical NLP. So it's, it's good to have somebody like that on board, but it's also like a belief in the stuff we are doing. You have an algorithm to translate all of English into this kind of circuitry. Yeah. Now, yeah. could you... Could you just describe a bit how that algorithm works? And is the algorithm for, let's say, grammatically correct English? Or is the algorithm, would, would the algorithm parsing for something like, hey, what's up? This is still in the, in the idealized realm at this point. This is still in the idealized realm. So, so basically what you do, I kind of sort of hinted that before. So we got this picture, we, I mean, I can't show you, our, our typical pictures of languages, you got like the meanings, words, they are sort of boxes. Right? The meanings are boxes, and then they're wired together with grammar. So you actually have to go inside the boxes and put some wirings in there too. So, I mean, for, for, for certain words like relative pronouns, these are just like a bunch of wires. And for many functional words, these are just wires. If you go to things which actually have content, like a verb or... Then you've got a little box in the big box, and then also a lot of wires. These wires, they're, very, they're, all, you, you can, they're all very justified. We even have, have theorems that with, with the right representations, they come at no cost. So if you stick them inside and then let these wires interact with the grammatical structure, suddenly everything collapses into something much smaller. But that is something. It's a magical thing. It's a magical thing. have to know, okay, the word... It's exactly like you were talking about Montague. You just need to know the type, but, not the meaning. But you, you need, like, you need to, your compiler needs to have a list of saying. It needs, you use, need some CCG parser or something like that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, At this point, you do. Here's, you do, the, you do. here's the, maybe the heretic question. Could we learn these types? Yeah. Ultimately, you want to. Ultimately, you want to. Uh, well, but I mean, we, we, we're working in sub-steps now, like we, we actually got, a, we, we got, it's kind of a really cool tool we've got, like uh, we, whether you believe in what we do or not, it's really cool. You can type in whatever sentence and then it spits out a quantum circuit. You can actually, I mean, I don't think we've provided the link, but we've got it working. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. <laughs> anyway, it's funky. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you, you, so, so the so, so the question is, if you don't know the, so, so there's actually, there, there's like this one paper I know by uh, Smolensky and some, some, some Microsoft people who actually use actually also quantum computer to come up with the parsing. Like, like, just like you were saying, they come up with a probabilistic tree of what is the likely parsings here and there. And they can then, of course, deal with stuff which is not entirely grammatical. Mm. So, but, but they still use Smolensky's model. They still use Smolensky's model, which is way too complicated. 
So, um, Bob, you, you, you wrote a, a 900 page book, on, I think it's called um, Picturing Quantum Processes, right? And, and you've, you've been working on this formalism, actually, this pictorial formalism or calculus for quantum reasoning, I think you said since about 2004. And I've actually read your new book, which is aimed at um, high school students. I, I know you, you've got an idea, actually, that it might be possible to democratize quantum reasoning to the point that school kids can actually do it. And and I and I read through it, and it was actually understandable e- even to me. So um, how did this all come about? I mean, I mean, so, so I'm just part of my brain. Uh, and, 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 when we had to read a book at school, just reading a book at school, I mean, I hated it. I just always hated to read. It, it basically gave me an headache. I think there may be something to do with my missing part of my brain or whatever, but I just hate reading. I always hated reading. Uh, and and uh, I mean, the, the idea to have like some, some black print on white paper and that's supposed to convey something to you, I've, I've always thought it was completely absurd. Uh, so I'm a very visual person. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, so, so, so also mathematically, I think I've always thought very geometrically. There's no way, I mean, I, I don't understand, I can't stare at symbols. So that's that's something very personal. I know there's probably, some people are sort of more symbolic, also brightly minded, otherwise are more, others are more geometrically minded. But but in my case, it seems to be pretty extreme. Now, now the reason I got there was uh, basically uh, my hatred of quantum mechanics. I just, I just thought the quantum formalism, there is something fundamentally wrong with. And then one of the places it, it, it seemed to me was this idea that, 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 that what's more important than anything about quantum mechanics is the way systems interact. It's actually something I learned in hindsight that Schrodinger had said in the 30s and nobody had took, took, took attention from. So, so, so basically, the key t- so for Neumann always thought, what is, qua- what, what is the most important thing about quantum mechanics? I mean, I got the microphone here. It's like you start observing the microphone and... and, and what it does, I mean, observing a microphone would, for example, be speaking into it or, and, and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of quite analogous and then inside something starts vibrating. So that, that, that was the Volumen's idea. You interact with the system and then it came actually up with something which is called quantum logic. Like what are the sort of propositions we can attribute to that? And then this propositional structure is completely different from a Boolean algebra, it turns out. Uh, so Schrodinger said, no, it's not that. It's like, like what happens if I put a microphone next to the speaker? So I put the two together. He doesn't care what happens inside the microphone. He doesn't care what happens inside the speaker. What he cares about is if I put the two together, suddenly I get like this sound circus. You know, a new phenomenon emerges, which was impossible to have with the microphone alone and which was impossible to have with the speaker alone. Yeah, and it's the same thing in intelligence. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated yeah. by embodied intelligence and you know, kind of yeah. like self-referentiality and um, the the, yeah. the emergence of of these kind of complex dynamical systems as as a the, function of their interaction. The, the thing, the thing, mathematical formalisms throughout the, I mean, they they never actually focused on this sort of thing. They always start from you describe. I mean, you, you take a set with structure and then you 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 build your Hilbert space and then maybe you take a tensor product for two Hilbert spaces. But you don't start discussing the interaction without actually, you have to know already that you're dealing with Hilbert space before. And this thing is not a Hilbert space, a microphone, and the speaker is not a Hilbert space. So what is, how, how, is there some maths which connects them without having to say what they actually are? And that's actually, so the place where I start was category theory, and specifically tensor monoidal categories, because that's where you can do that. I mean, category theory books are the most horrible things to actually understand that that's what that's that's what it's supposed to describe it's just horrible it doesn't tell you that but that's it but then at the same time for certain kind of categories certain kind of nodal categories 
you can show that they're completely equivalent to purely diagrammatic representation. So you first go very abstract, and then you, then, then you end up with something which is so pure that actually becomes very simple. And then the idea, mathematically, of putting the microphone and the speaker together is basically just drawing two lines side by side. One line is the live line of the microphone, the other line is the live line of the speaker. And then the, the sort of structure of the stuff you can do before and after determines then that, that you can have this feedback loop. And in a, in a Cartesian work, world where things wouldn't interact at all, like two, two, two completely non-interacting things, then these wires will never come together. They will always stay separate. But in, in, in that world where you've got maximal interaction, like in quantum mechanics or in language, you can actually have cup shapes between these two wires, like you probably read in, read in the book, like these cup-shaped things. And, and if you look at lambic pre-groups, he, he has exactly the same things, the cups and the caps. And that's, that's just basically because words in, a, words in a sentence, they communicate with each other within the sentence, of course. Otherwise, you wouldn't form a sentence if they were completely independent. There's no point forming a sentence. So, and there is nothing mystical about the, the fact that these two structures occur, say, in language and in quantum, because from, from, if you understand them like mathematically, they basically say this is maximal communication. They are just the maximal mode of com communication, while cutting them apart would be the minimal mode of communication. They're just ma maximal mode of communication. There's nothing more to it. So there's nothing mystical about language or some connection with quantum. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing there. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the insight to work with these diagrams was exactly the same insight to work with the right categorical structure. It, they came hand in hand too. It was just an accident that they happened to be diagrams. And, and then at the time, that was 2004, 2005, it seemed like a, a nice site, a nice project in itself to turn all of quantum mechanics diagrammatically. It, it, it sort of showed up as an opportunity by trying to axiomatize. So, so the real goal for me was trying to have an holistic, because the word was for holistic presentation of quantum mechanics through category theory. And that ended up becoming a diagrammatic formalism. I, I think it's fascinating because um, I'm a big believer in creating powerful abstractions and interfaces and being able to reduce things to building blocks that hide away a lot of unnecessary um, complexity behind the interface. And that's what you've done. We see this in deep learning. I mean, we had Francois Cholet on the other week. He's created Keras, which is a deep learning library that completely abstracts away a lot of the complexities of deep learning. And, and I think actually your, your ZX Calculus will democratize quantum reasoning for a whole new generation of folks that wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. So that, that's great um we've only got a few minutes left and i just wanted to touch on um the state of quantum hardware in general now i, I know that you've just been appointed chief scientist um, um at, at cambridge quantum computing and I, I, can, can can you just completely break this down for us because there's so much hype and misinformation around quantum computing and certainly oh. at my workplace we've got loads of people that are doing quantum computing and everyone's talking about quantum computing and and i've honestly i've just pretty much ignored it i've filtered it out for years because i I don't even know what the state of the art is. So can, can, can you like just tell us in clear terms? Uh, I, mean, I mean, the best way to tell it is, is I mean, I'm now going to do like the sort of the context kind of thing. So, so in, in 2016, 2017, uh, when we were dealing with this language formalism and, and, and the problem we had with the exponential size of the tensors, all that, I wrote a paper with a guy called Win Zhang and, and we said, okay, well, let's see which algorithms we can use if we stick on a quantum computer. But I mean, we, I thought it was a joke. I thought this would never ever be possible to even get anything like that running on a quantum computer anywhere in the next 10 years. So, uh, so what we have done 
in the last sort of experiments is we're training these 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 circuits with with libraries of like 100 250 sentences i mean they 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 they're quite complex sentences and then we do some sort of a naive question answering and we get very nice convergences so it's it's shocking that we can actually do that it's shocking that we can do this now i mean there's of course no way that we compete with anything existing but for me, it's shocking that we even can do it. Uh, again, from like an NLP perspective, the thing which Google did with their 53 qubits is something that purely in terms of space requirements, like representational space requirements, you couldn't do in a classical machine. There's no comp computer infrastructures around in the world which would allow to store the same data. So we're already at a level that we that you can actually store more data in such a machine. I mean, with all the things that you can't access it and blah, 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 blah. But you can store more data now in a, in, in a 53 quantum computer than you, can, than you can do in any existing computing system. But not store. It's not that you stick it in, but it is there. I mean, there is stuff in there that you sure. can't. So if you understand. So that, so it, it already is stretching beyond what's possible classically in some way. And this has gone incredibly fast, much faster than... I mean, I definitely imagine that many people imagine. And, and so the sort, of, the sort of chat has changed from is it going to happen to when it's going to happen. And I think most nobody, even the skepticals in the field, are starting to think that it will not happen within 10 years. So let me just challenge a couple of things on that, because, you know, my, my coffee cup here stores more information than any current quantum oh, computer oh. right so so information isn't necessarily useful like in and of itself this is why for example there's only a handful of what 20 quantum mechanics algorithms right because you you know the algorithms themselves have to fit in a form that's actually usable on a quantum computer so i think i mean i think you would agree we're still in the so-called uh nisc era right like the noisy oh, totally, intermediate totally. I mean, okay i mean Totally, totally. I mean, what, what I, I mean, I didn't make any claim about predictions, you know. Right. I was very careful not to do that. Understood. I was just, I was just showing my surprise on how quickly it has gone, and the fact that we have been able to do what we are doing already on such a machine. I'm completely in shock. Okay. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any projection, and I'm saying now that the general attitude, I think, within the community, including the skepticals, is now that. In around ten years, you will have something practical. Okay. Although the the the, the hype currently it says it's less, I wouldn't dare sort of to put the number on it. Like, uh, I mean, I mean, if if you really would force me, I I think we can do something in two three years that's meaningful. So, so just specifically for the language, I think we can do something in two three years that's meaningful that you couldn't do on a classical machine. Okay. But that's by no means necessarily something you can sell. Okay, so fair enough. Uh, On the other hand... Uh, it would just be more a, a, a proof of concept. Yeah, I mean, and fair enough, but I think part of that is due to, if I recall from one of your papers, part of that optimism is due to the fact that you were able to map some specific NLP problems to problems that could still function in a NISC, like in a non-error-corrected sure. quantum computer. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, the results are pretty okay. The, the results are like competitive, competitive with, with a small scale experiment on classical hardware. If you would do really small scale experiment, like 
the, the data is, is clean enough. It's, 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 it's equally clean, more or less. So, 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 sure, I just uh, wanted to see if you agree that... I mean, this, this probably has to do with the fact that, that NLP is noisy anyway. Right. So I think I just wanted to make sure that, that you agree, because hype in and of itself can be a dangerous thing. It can lead people down, you know, waste avenues. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't know, have to tell it, me. Start, we started this conversation with hype about sure. ML and hype about string theory, and then there's the same hype here. Because in, in quantum computing, like the meaning of it has kind of changed over the years. Like in, in the early days, what quantum computing meant to theoreticians was error-corrected computing, like fault, yeah. you know, fault-free or, or, or whatnot. Uh, computing and because we haven't gotten to there yet right and we're still in the noisy era um, it's now morphed into well it also includes you know non-error corrected quantum computing and i think like the 10-year timeline for error corrected practically useful quantum computing is not correct like we you know it's even not clear can you do it with a million qubits or do you need you know a hundred million qubits before you can start having effective you know error corrected quantum computing is that fair or am i wrong about that well i mean i mean it, it's very hard i mean le le let me start with a negative example like, like, like fusion nuclear fusion i mean i remember when i was i mean probably every single physics student since 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 the second world war has, has, has gotten lectures about like in five ten years there will be nuclear fusion reactors and they're clean and, and blah 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 i got that lecture in the early 90s in five ten years we've got fusion reactors they're still not here so so these are things like engineering stuff like that is completely impossible to to, to predict now the situation with quantum computer is much more complicated because of the different architectures which each have their own different problems and advantages so so, so, so if you look at the superconducting stuff, which has been getting most of the attention recently, because that's what Google and IBM have and, and Rigetti, the superconducting stuff. Uh, I mean, they're making good progress. Uh, they're making remarkably good progress. But there it's a lot of dealing. The noise dealings are really hard and the sort of error correction seems pretty far still. Uh, then then you got, for example, the, the iron traps. Uh, these things are actually quite clean in themselves. You can go pretty mm. deep with them. They, they, they have a harder time putting uh, many qubits together. But like, I mean, the, I mean, I've been talking quite a bit to the INQ guy, and, and they're thinking they've got a hundred qubit machine going. Now, a hundred qubit machine, if it's relatively clean and you don't have to do error correction, is a pretty amazing thing. This would be a pretty amazing oh, yeah. thing. Now, when we're talking about fault tolerance and millions, then we're talking optics. Because I mean, optics, light, light is, is, is kind of freely available everywhere, you know, and light is incredibly stable. If it wasn't stable, we wouldn't be watching each other now. <laughs> it's pretty amazing how, how, how nice behaved light is. So, I mean, I know the, I know the, the, the quantum guys, like who get most of the money, uh, the, 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 they, they, they claim they're going to have something within four or five years. I mean, I, the guy I know is not like a, a bragger. But is but so so, and and the sort of system they use is completely different in architecture from anything like the IBM's and the so they are doing measurement-based quantum computing. So measurement-based quantum computing is this amazingly cool thing in itself, where you don't apply unit trees or you don't apply operations. You just measure. You do nothing else but measuring. Just dag, 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 dag. and the, the the measurement dynamics actually is what your computation. So that's what they're doing. It's completely different architecture, which has nothing anything to, anymore to do with any kind of computing. Is it going to work? We don't know. But 
so so you got a few you got a few tracks here you got a few tracks so that's the that that's the difference with the fusion where you only had one track so it could be that two two out of three completely fail that no i mean there's new tracks coming by the way it's not just these three there's a few other so it's very hard to put put your money anywhere because of this different architecture which are completely different i mean maybe maybe uh, and and i think the smart people they don't I mean, for a long time, people weren't really looking for a quantum computer, as in a universal computer, but quant certain quantum components. And they, they could actually come from the different machines together. You know, you could have like this big hybrid thing where, where you take a little bit iron trap, a little bit condensed matter, a little, little bit like optics. Uh, yeah, so, so it, it's, it's a very hard one to put any money on. It's a very hard one. But, but there is something like self-fulfilling prophecy. And to this, I mean, let me say two things about the hype. There is something like about self-fulfilling prophecy by like putting enough money into it. This happened in, in, for, to give a bad, well, it depends whether you call it a bad example. It happened with the Manhattan Project. Just, I mean, I think you, you start your story with the Second World War and uh, why academia can, in the US changed right. so much. It was probably because of the Manhattan Project that they say if we, can, if we can sort of make all these academics work on one thing together, they actually get it done, which is what happened then. Like the, the guys, you know, the category theory was invented by two guys working on the Manhattan Project in the evenings. They were doing that. They were there really? working on it. Didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. And the, the other thing, so there is this self-fulfilling prophecy thing, the, enor the enormous amount of focus that's going into it and the pressures, the pressures from the hype can actually be, the pressures from the hype can be helpful, helpful too, because there is this pressure we have, we have to deliver because there is this yeah. hype. I'm, I'm glad that in a way I'm glad there is because we've spoken about the hardware lottery on this channel quite a lot and that is almost all of the scientific effort at the moment is determined by the previous investment and hardware decisions we've made in the past we got a bit lucky with the GPUs and deep learning and so on but we are in a basin of attraction in our research and there's hardly any interesting new paths being taken yeah so well an another thing which I think is different from it's probably the same with machine learning that, that what's different from like say string theory which well, we're eating all theoretical physics jobs is that most of the quantum stuff is happening outside academia with investment and money which is complementary to the usual academic funding so it's 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 not going to sort of eat away the other disciplines but most people just leave academia because the circumstances now to work on quantum are better outside academia than inside it's as simple as that hmm. and then the money comes from completely different sources of course yeah, same in deep it, learning. It, yeah, it's say that's what I'm saying. It's probably analogous there. So, so yeah. I really don't understand why they're hiring so many machine learning faculty because I mean it almost seems to me that the real good machine learning people, given the salaries outside and the relative freedom, <laughs> why would they stay in academia? <laughs> yeah, well, we spoke to a guy called Mark Serafin recently, and he wrote a, a blog post called the, "The Great Stagnation in Machine Learning." But he was saying that machine learning people now are a bit like the previous Catholic high priests or something like that—that that they don't have to risk anything. They can go and earn a six-figure salary. They're just sort of yeah. chasing and just, you know, reeling out the, the same old stuff. And um, you know, it's almost like zero risk. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Professor Bob Kirk, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor that, that you've joined us this evening and I really, really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Oh, bro, you gotta go, you gotta get on the crypto, bro. Why is, uh, did Bitcoin do something today or are we? No, just the last few weeks, oh. I guess. What's happened to it? It's That's just back up to like, uh, you know, above where it was before. Enormously high. And enormous as in $50,000 or more than that? 
Yeah, and Ether has has made quite quite a thing. I mean, they're doing really cool stuff with Ethereum. Like, there's the I don't know if the Berlin upgrade has already happened or is happening soon, but um, they're like really pushing stuff forward. There, there's like new math coming out of these communities. It's it's pretty cool. Wow. So is it something that we should be paying attention to? Too late. I don't know I mean, if, if it's if, if it's from Yannick. I'll I'll, I'll pay attention. Yeah. Well, if it not, I I don't think it has a big connection to to ML per se, uh, because I mean the technology itself is almost orthogonal, right? Like there, it's either it, it's it's like super duper binary. Uh, like either your key fits or it doesn't either you know your proofs are correct or not and if not then it's infinitely bad there there's no notion of closeness or anything um yeah i mean there there is there is these topics of how can we do machine learning on blockchain and so on but that's a it's a bit of a tangent would it be beneficial to have a couple of qubits <laughs> I can or, give you one. Oh, have we got one, Keith? Hmm? Oh, I'm How sorry, many qubits I wasn't have we got? Well, I'm just thinking we could we could if I gave you a qubit, could you give me some Ethereum? A qubit? Yeah, you can like have an one. actual a physical qubit. Yeah. How um, how large is it? I'm going to give you a quantum computer. Yeah. And you can have one of my qubits. Would that be enough for you? I, I wouldn't even know how to remotely use that. Well, I don't understand the question. Yeah. Are you asking <laughs> if I would pay you for your qubits? You would like to start mining Ethereum. Yeah. And what if I gave you a quantum computer? I think that oh. would break it. I think so most of the crypto technology today isn't actually quantum proof in their right. in their hashing. But as soon as quantum computers are on the market, they'll just switch to a quantum proof algorithm. So it, it wouldn't actually do anything. Yeah, it'll just, it might just make the where everybody can go back and uh, troll all your old uh, emails that have been stored <laughs> in NSA or whatever, even if you've encrypted them and find out <laughs> what you said. And, you know, I guess they'd have to upgrade the blockchain. They'd have to go back and re encrypt it and get everybody to switch over to a new chain. So I'm in a startup now, my own actually. It sucks. Oh, it, go on. It means that whenever I make a mistake, we go bankrupt. It means that you're you're no longer welcome on Street Talk, Yannick, <laughs> because we we don't we don't do startup. Pitch your yeah. Start trying to pitch yeah. your startup. Yeah. No, no MBA yeah. speak. If if you say anything about data products, then you'll be banned. No, we just want to make the world a better place. Of course, of course you do. Yeah. Here's what you do. you do: put make sure you put "Don't be evil" in your corporate you know, mission, and then 10 <laughs> years from now, take it out. <laughs> so, so Kilcher, we'll give you this one opportunity. Give us the elevator pitch. You've got 30 seconds. Uh, what, what do your numbers look like for year three? Um, we use... 20 seconds. Um, we, uh, we use transformers. Of course you do. Okay, good. Good start. I hope you know, so. You want to buy it? Any any blockchain in there? <laughs> no. Does it solve the missing text problem? It, yes, yes. It, it is, solves. Is, is, it the legal, it is it the legal software? Yes, yeah, it's okay. legal. It's right, just, cool. it's legal tech. And uh, yeah, 
That's, I, I think it's pretty st straightforward application of sort of legal and uh, like NLP to legal. Is it information retrieval? Yeah, it's, it's some is information retrieval, yes. But, but there's, there's lots of tasks and um, there's lots of competition. But I think, you know, in Switzerland and in the German speaking part, we sort of have a, a home field advantage. <laughs> Okay, so this is the debrief. We've we've just had a great show with Bob. What 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 do you yeah. guys think about that? I gotta tell you, so this is such a great example, at least for for me, of how dialogue and just talking to somebody just brings a completely different understanding of their work. Because before, you know, and I can't explain it, but I mean, before actually having a chance to talk with them, listen with them, interact, you know with Bob, it was like, I really came across thinking this is a reductionist sort of silver bullet kind of, you know, theory for how like everything is going to be solved by this particular quantum mechanical, you know, formulation of NLP. And he's not, he, he's, that's not his point at all. So, so I mean, yeah, I think this is an example of how things like, you know, you know how on the internet, if you're in a forum or something or an email chain, things can spiral like out of control so quickly. And so it's just an example of how this iterative dialogue back and forth is such an important, you know, communication uh, mechanism. I wish we saw a lot more of it personally. Um, you know, maybe viewers here don't, don't, they don't know this, but I, at some point I looked at Discord and there were over, like my notification counter was over 100 with people like sending back and forth papers and, and we're like, oh, and yeah, I, I felt the same thing. Like once you, you talk to someone and you, you let them, you let them talk, let them actually explain themselves and, and also challenge them a bit on, on, on just your, let's say if you have some worries, if you have some concerns about if, or, you know, you just put that to them and give them a mm -hmm. chance to to express that and i i think we've yeah we've almost never gone wrong doing that and it's i think that makes yeah makes the world much more interesting because actually a lot of people seem to be much more reasonable and kind of down to earth and understanding than it would seem from just reading about them yeah no, nuance is so important. I, I was quite worried about this show for a few reasons, because first of all, it's definitely outside of our comfort zone. I mean, I, I don't really know anything about quantum and, and Bob is such a strange beast. He is um, invoking many formalisms and approaches from computational ling linguistics that we haven't really seen for a very long time. A huge overlap with Walid Summer. And you saw the path that he traveled, like the path that he traveled to get to where he's at. Very, you know, eclectic yeah, journey, com right? Yeah, completely different. I, I love that, because he actually said he's, he's a, an Oxford professor and he's admitting that he's a very visual thinker and, and he likes to think about problems in a different way. He's written a book about quantum reasoning for high school students and I read that book the other day and I'll, I'll do some stuff about it in, in the intro. But it's just so fascinating for me just to see the diversity and also us to be out of our comfort zone because you know as Cholet said information it's the intelligence is the information conversion ratio and, and and we're putting ourselves out there by you know challenging ourselves with a lot of material that we've not seen before and then I, I was a bit <clears throat> I was a bit worried actually because um, I thought that we would be challenging him on things like syntax uh, not semantics and the missing information problem and I, I, I personally don't believe strongly that his NLP system works particularly well 
quantum or not and we challenged him on that and and i I thought we had a great exchange yeah i mean i don't i don't think personally i don't think we should ever be afraid of i mean i know i know what happens right because people come into the the comments and whatever else i mean we're in my opinion we're here to be you know hosts we're here to ask questions whether they're dumb or not you know whether i don't care like i'm not pretending to be somebody who knows everything the expert on the show knows. I mean, what would be the point of that? You know, just having a, you know, we want to bring people along for a journey and kind of represent questions and evoke conversation to challenge where we're capable. I mean, that's how I view our, our role. So I'm not afraid to, to be put myself out there and be deemed, you know, an idiot like that. That's fine. I don't mind. No, the, the explicit goal well, on any episode. I don't. I don't even have. I don't even have to do anything differently for to evoke that. Um, so you you like Mark Twain, right? Like better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. The only thing we need to be evoking is as many co- comments from Walid Subra as possible. I, I think this will generate I mean, I, at least three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so the 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 important thing for me as well is and and you're saying that like getting out of our comfort zone and I think getting sort of the mainstream, which is by definition the, the largest portion of people, out of their comfort zone. Because if you look at NLP today and you go on, I don't know, YouTube and, and all blogs and Reddit and so on, it's whatever, transformers, 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 maybe some graph neural networks, maybe some LSTM, transformers, transformers certainly Mm -hmm. certainly some kind of neural network in there certainly a big data set and scale and gpt3 it is absolutely refreshing to see people doing completely different things um and 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 not saying that they are gonna replace neural networks like that that's like that is like the biggest credit to let's say him or also people like like Walid Saba who who we had on but just saying like look there's stuff missing and no one's talking about it and you know we're here even though it's not popular we're here actually doing that stuff that's missing and Charlay's in the same boat too yeah, right yeah yeah exactly so that's i i think that's that's super super cool agreed yeah well there you go, putting ourselves out of our comfort zone because it, it, we could just make a video about um, a Kaggle competition or yeah, boring. Yeah, yeah. I mean that stuff. So, so I, I don't, I don't know. I, I hope, I hope our uh, listeners appreciate that that we do this because look, I, honestly, I'm out there trying to have fun. I'm out there trying to learn. I'm out there to to try and bring along some other folks that that want to have fun and learn. And you know, this is this is a very fun thing to do. Like have challenging conversations to ask questions. What's more fun than asking a question and learning something? You know, um, you know, uh, Jose Capablanca, like the, you know, sort of chess genius who was world champion for, I don't know, like 15 years or, or something absurd. I mean, just a natural born chess talent and then started very early playing and became this phenomenal, you know, force. And in his, in his biography, he wrote that one of the darkest times of his professional career was when he felt like he would never lose another game because he went through the streak where he just never lost. It was just draw, win, draw, win, right? And, uh, you know, he, he said he learned so much from every game that he lost that he just was dismayed that he was in this situation where he's never going to have that experience of, 
of learning again. And that's what I, I love to learn and ask questions I don't, I don't know the answer to. I mean, that's the fun part, isn't it? Well, it's scary. Sure. Like today, <laughs> you know, I mean, who, who, yeah, you know, say quantum computers. I mean, if you're not in that field, I don't know how you could possibly keep up with, with what's happening technologically because it's just exploding. There's so much hype. There's so much stuff going on. And it was really cool to hear from him about these different, you know, uh, types of quantum computers, because honestly, the only ones I had ever really paid attention to or saw kind of theoretical results were all about the, you know, electron spin, yeah. uh, quantum computers. And so when he told me about this light based, you know, quantum computer, that fascinates me because going back to when I was a kid, you know, we used to, to read scientific American articles or discover articles or whatever about optical computing. And everybody's like, oh, optical computing, it's going to just, you know, and you look in, in science fiction movies and they've got these optical chips and everything, like in 2001, you know, they're plugging in little clear crystal uh, cylinders and, you know, things like that. It's just cool, right? So now I want to go read about optical quantum computing and daydream about a world where, we're, where we've got machines like that, right? So that's the fun part. Yeah, the, the hype around quantum is a serious problem. I, that's why I've just learned to filter it out. Because normally when, when I'm reading articles or people sharing stuff on LinkedIn or it's it's just surrounded by a smoky hype and I just don't know what the state of the art is. Says the AI consultant. Well, I, I like to think that we are quite good <laughs> at cutting through the bullshit here on Street Talk. We 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 challenge ourselves a lot. I think Yeah, I I think we do. Um I'm the first to say that um there's a lot of hype around deep learning. No, honestly, I think the Cholet episode yeah. was the most concise articulation yet of my opinion on on the state of deep learning. I think deep learning is a wonderful pattern matching system for learning these continuous natural manifolds. And what's yeah. amazing is that some of it isn't hype. Deep learning really has been a revolution, right? I mean, just... Just just sure. imagine that GAN, you know, like interpolating between people's faces that don't exist. It's, that's incredible. But, yeah. No, it, it completely is. What, what I push back against are the silver bullet people. Like, the, we've got to understand, folks, that there's no one true solution to everything. You know, the, the amazing and bizarre thing about reality is that it has you know, these theories and models kind of on multiple levels, you know, whether, whether you think about it as theories that emerge, or if you're a reductionist and you want to say you can always break things down to a, a finer level, that's still the same dimension, which is that there are multiple levels of, of operation and thought and, and theory and, and method. Right. And so forget about silver bullets. They're not out there. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, deep learning, machine learning, fantastic for some problem space. It's not the solution to all our problems. Deep learning is uniquely deceptive, and that's because it's a parlor trick. So you can use deep learning for anything. You can make it pretend to be good at anything, even reasoning any kind of software. As, as Sholly was saying, you, you, you can even model a continuous manifold around a discrete problem. So it's uniquely deceptive because you could say, well, I'm going to use this to do some, some reasoning, and, and it appears to work. At first sight, it appears to work. And that's why it's so deceptive. I can tell Yannick is thinking I mean, so. I, I, like, well, I, I, while he's thinking, I'm going to say this, which is I think a lot of the deception comes from um, 
comes from the fact that you have sort of theories like, you know, uh, that uh, that ReLUs are a universal function approximator, right? Or that this sort of thing. And people forget about the infinities that are kind of involved in those those sorts of theories, right? And so when you forget about infinity, uh, like like James had this funny funny thing where he did this uh, this analysis of um, of uh, paradoxes. And, and, he, and he said, you know, some people define paradox as something that's surprising to somebody. Well, then anything can be a paradox, right? And he actually goes so far as to construct a paradox generator. And the way that you do it is you set up a problem, okay, that, that depends on a limit. Like it depends on the way in which you go to infinity, okay? You take the limit and then you forget which limit you applied um, and then derive some results, right? <laughs> so it's like... Anytime you're kind of taking these limits to infinity and you forget that you've done that, then you get your mind into, into these weird situations. Yeah, so people, people get deceived by these, these results that come from infinity and then kind of forgetting about it and not understanding that in a practical scenario, different tools work, work well in different situations. Oh, are you talking about Turing completeness on neural networks by any chance? <laughs> That was no, that was no, like not today. I'm not. Wasn't I'm that, that Schmidt Uber in his talk saying like LSTMs are like the most powerful thing because they're Turing complete? And I I made the point that so are crabs because people built these logic gates out of crabs. Right? Yeah. Like, what was the, the, What was his example with the NAND gate or something? Most, well, you can build oh, yeah, an AND yeah. gate, like, and the AND right. gate can build a CPU, and the CPU is Turing complete, right? Yeah, but a CPU is uh, not Turing complete. Yeah, it's only the it's only the FSM piece of a Turing complete system, yeah. right? Because you've got to have, and again, no practical machine is Turing complete. But this is not not the point. You know, the you know the CPU also has read write memory, mm -hmm. so it has tapes, and it has a thing which is driving it in this iterative, you know process so like with with rnns you know always like oh they're turing complete here's the thing is as far as i know you guys correct me if i'm wrong nobody takes like every time you run an rnn you run it in an unrolled way and you train it in an unrolled way which is you have a finite look back it's like i'm going to iterate but only for some finite number of times and then that's the score for that sort of set of data, which is a time series over a finite period of time, right? Like nobody runs an RNN where they just sit there and run it forever on a potentially infinite, you know, input. And certainly nobody ever trains them in that way. Am I wrong? Well, no, no, like practically you're not wrong. There are, there are things like neural ODEs and, and stuff like this, where you're, you're trying to sort of predict what happens in, in the limit or, or at least after some continuous amount of time and things. But yeah, of course you're right in a, like in the practical setting. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yes. I mean, sure. If you have an RNN and you're going to iterate it for a, for a arbitrary amount of time, a potentially, you know, infinite amount of time, and you supply it with some source of potentially infinite memory, like whether it's tapes that it can write to or potentially infinite registers that it can effectively treat as stacks or whatever, then you've just got a Turing machine, right? You just have a Turing machine where the finite state machine piece, the transition function, is an RNN. Like, so mm. what? Like, no, like, that's not the point. The point is that RNNs, as people in this field, typically envision them, right? 
instead of redefining it as a as essentially a Turing machine, RNNs as they typically envision them are not Turing complete. Like it's just that simple. I mean, you know, we it'd be like if back in the day, you know, when people were working on on uh, finite state machines, and before they introduced push down automata. Somebody just came along and go, oh, well, you know, finite state machines are no different than push down automata because I can just, I can just like have an infinite number of, of nodes in my finite state machine. Or I can like add, I can add a stack to it too with like infinite precision registers. It's just stupid. You know, I mean, the point is to create categories of computation to start to think about how they're different, how you might train them, you know, et cetera. Not to just say everything is everything. Yeah. Like that doesn't. I, not I, th I think it, it's a trap to think of neural networks as being computers. I, I think it, it makes much more sense, as Cholet says, just to think of them as statistical interpolators. Stop thinking that GPT-3 is running a program. You know, it's not. Well, with I think with, with respect, the, maybe the last thing I'll say, but with respect to deep learning be a, being a parlor trick and, and whatnot, I think, I think you can, like, I, I'd weigh this with 90% uh, of being true. And the other 10%, I think we have to, we have to move from, from the other direction where I think the perception is too much that things like logic and understanding and you know, what we do as humans in our head is, is so abstract and, and is so symbolic. And, and, all, and I, I think we also have to move a bit away from that to a point where, where you say, I don't actually really know how my thoughts come to be. I don't. I don't actually do the step by step inference all the time. I, I. I actually sort of more, you know, do whatever, right? And 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 that is still called intelligence. That is still called solving a problem or or transmitting information and whatnot. So maybe for the the last ten percent, we also have to admit that. We as humans aren't aren't as are also a bit of a parlor trick sometimes, and we're still yeah. It's just that the saying that deep learning is a bit of a parlor trick. It doesn't really run an algorithm. It doesn't really um, right. you know do some do the kind of computation we we ask, like the someone at DeepMind might demonstrate it does and so on. Uh, I just think that we as humans probably don't do that either some of the time and it's still yeah. still we call it intelligence right still so I, we call I, it. I agree with you on that and i mean this, and and that's why i know in one of our one of our shows we did i you know we were talking to somebody and i was asking like okay well what's missing right mm -hmm. from 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 neural net like what is it that's in our brain that if we just added this to sort of computational neurons and whatnot that we could now capture like whatever's and I think that's a useful paradigm to think about, which is let's start from the assumption that there's no magic there and that, and that whether it's a parlor trick or not, you know, I don't know, but the point is to compare, like what's mm. different about what we're doing in this system versus this system, whether you're comparing a, an RNN to what a Turing machine does or an, a, or a Turing machine to a human being or an RNN to a human being, like let's look for where the differences are. And that's what allows us to, analytically break down what the differences are and then turn around and synthesize, you know, new systems and new models that have different capabilities. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I completely agree with that.
There you go. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to the dichotomy between discrete and continuous. Yeah. That bizarre, it comes up so many places, right? Like topology is weird because it's both continuous and discrete. Yeah. You know, you have these, these sort of things like a, like a, a, a donut or two donut rings stuck together. They clearly have two holes and that's a discrete thing too. There's two holes there. Yeah. And, and yet you can deform the thing, you know, you can allow all kinds of continuous deformations, but you can't get rid of those two holes. There's no way to get rid of those two holes. So there's, at the same time, you've got the continuity of the, of the manifold and the deformations that you allow, and you have this discreteness of two holes, or like in a wave packet, you know, it has all these continuous things, but it has a hump. It actually has a hump there, some localized concept. Well, on, right? on that, by the way, you heard it here first, manifolds are dimpled. They're like golf balls. There's, there's a new hypothesis of adversarial examples out called the dimpled manifold hypothesis. And I'm sure you'll be huh. hearing about that before long from here. Wait, what? No, where? You didn't know about this. Well, Yannick doesn't check his email. So this is the first time in history that I know more information than Yannick does. Yannick will make a video about this next week, but you heard it from me first. Where? Yes. Who said that? Yeah, so manifolds about are like dimples. Manifolds are like dimples. They've got they've got little holes in. Don't tell Yannick, because it always really pisses me off how Yannick is so fast. And before I've even got a chance to read something, he's got a video out of this. Don't scoop the, uh, no, a new theory, dimples, yeah, and, and it's not, you can't easily explain. You can't even access the paper. No. So Nicholas Carlini emailed no. us about this. Anyway... I was I was saying that as you say, Yannick, there's a weird. There, the thing is, like on on the on the continuous domain, it's it's all about interpolating, right? And and in in system two, it's like you're running a computer program. So there's such a weird interplay between those two worlds. But anyway, on that bombshell, you're getting scooped. You're getting scooped, Tim. Like Yannick's gonna find that paper and he's gonna make a video on Send it. Send me the paper, Yannick. Can you promise? This, this Yannick, is would, do you promise not to make a, a golf ball um, video on adversarial examples? Uh, um, before you do, yeah, I promise. I don't. I won't make one before you do. I'll, I'll never forget when we did the Francois. Yannick and I made a Francois Cholet video, and I, I spent weeks doing my video. And Yannick just like <laughs> he pit me to the post, and he, that's the only time Yannick's really pissed me off. <laughs> I wasn't even aware. He I was wasn't even like, aware. Huh. You know, because like, us, us mere mortals self-awareness. over here, it takes us a long time to read papers. This is the problem when you have a machine as a friend. They they just they're just doing their thing, you know, grinding forward mechanistically. Exactly. No, anyway, uh, on that bombshell. See you next week. Thanks. Bye bye, all.